Hello, humans. This is Jesse, aka The Bizzle, and welcome to BizzleCast 15, my audio commentary for the Two Towers Extended Edition, the second Lord of the Rings film. I've already released my commentary for the Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition and have already recorded my commentary for. The Return of the King, the final of the Lord of the Rings movies, and that is the extended edition as well, and will be released soon. This movie, obviously, it is the second of three in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The Two Towers is, in some ways, my favorite, especially the theatrical cut of The Two Towers, which is the one of the three that I feel very strongly that the theatrical cut is actually superior, although there are a lot of cut scenes in this version that I do like very much, others not as much, and I will discuss that. I have actually been doing this commentary series backwards. Um, it wasn't my plan, but I just got the urge to do one for the extended version of Return of the King, because I love watching it so much. The extended version of Return of the King, for me, is the only of the three movies where you must watch it, even though it's already the longest movie and it's close to four hours. There are just some, you know, unbelievably critical scenes um, in terms of plot, character, and so forth, but also just total nerd-out scenes that I can't believe they cut from the final edition. And I love watching the extended version of Return of the King and thought it would be cool to do commentary on it. The rewatchability is amazing, and there's just a lot of great character and theme stuff going on, as well as um, Tolkien-esque history, if you will. So I just felt like doing it, and then I was like, well, maybe I should do the whole trilogy. In Bizzlecast 12, I released a Lord of the Rings sort of retrospective podcast with my good friend Adam Tuck to sort of lead into the audio commentaries. Uh, my discussion with Adam about both the films and books is Bizzlecast 12, Bizzlecast 14, is my Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition commentary, and so this Two Towers Extended Edition commentary will then be Bizzlecast 15. I love this movie, I love the pacing, the Battle of Helm's Deep for me is the best battle in the trilogy, even though it's not the biggest per se in terms of the number of combatants, though it is quite big. I love how it starts and I love how it ends, just like Empire. It moves up and down and left and right, but ultimately delivers and moves our characters forward in preparation for the actual huge battle in the inevitable end of the third movie. I considered not doing the extended version for The Two Towers because I honestly don't like it as much as I do the theatrical cut. I don't hate it. There are just a lot of scenes uh, that, while fun uh, to watch, or to look at, or to listen to, don't really contribute to the overall plot or flow of the film in a way that was um, worth keeping them. And I think that the cuts in this movie are, are the best in terms of theatrical of all the movies. In my Return of the King commentary, and I'm sure in Fellowship it, it will be this way as well, I love the extended scenes, even if they were just character moments. I just don't think they hit here in all cases. Some of it's fan service, some of it is non-fan service, we will get to that. But I figured if I'm doing an extended version of all three movies, you probably have all three or have access to them. It does slow down the pace a little bit, but even the scenes uh, that were added or, or in the extended cut plan have value. But it doesn't even matter because the, you know, Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas stuff in this movie is phenomenal. This is the best Gollum movie because he's flipping between good and bad Gollum. Um, whereas in the third movie, he's really just a villain from the beginning and he's hiding it from them, but you know that that's what 
what's happening. So I won't say any more. I'm so pumped to jump into this commentary. I love watching this movie. Aomer and Aowen, as I talk about in Return of the King commentary, are my two favorite sort of sub uh, uh, side characters, excuse me, in both the books and the movie. I love them in the books. And even though it was a few years between my last reading of the books before the movies came out, I had them firmly in my mind as two characters that I really, really wanted good actors. And goddamn, Carl Urban and Miranda Otto nailed the brother-sister thing. The honorable warrior, brother-sister. I really identify with it, even though my life's not nearly as cool. And I'm not as cool or good-looking as Carl Urban. However, I've always identified with this because I have a little sister and she's incredibly strong and brave and inspiring um, in the way that Aon is and I just, you know, anyone who has a younger sister that they love can identify with their relationship in a way that it changes, but they're always there for each other. So I won't get too too much more sappy here. Uh, but, you know, I tend to tear up when I talk about my sister. Uh, she knows that and is probably embarrassed right now listening to this. But this is an amazing movie. It is very worthy within the trilogy. I would give it an A minus. Probably the average fans would say B B plus. Um, I say A minus uh, and very much A and A plus moments, which we will get to. So I hope you enjoy the commentary. So I'm going to do a countdown into the movie. So basically, depending on the media format in which you're watching the movie, it's not always aligned exactly the same. If you're watching the DVD or Blu-ray or any sort of official purchased version, like on Amazon Instant Video, the New Line Cinema logo is the first thing on screen, and at almost exactly eight seconds, you see the words New Line Cinema. Um, but at the same time, you know, with a little bit of tweaking as you're watching, you'll be able to line it up. You'll know exactly where it's supposed to be aligned. And if it's off by a second or two, it's no big deal. But I'm a stickler for this because I love audio commentaries. I listen to a million of them. And that's why I wanted to do my own and I've had a blast. So in a second here, I'm going to count it down from three, two, one. And I'm going to say go. And when I say go, you should have your uh, version of the movie uh, queued up to zero hours, zero minutes, zero seconds. And when I say go, you're going to want to hit start with me. And hopefully everything will align correctly. All right, so get it queued up and about to start the countdown. Ready? Three, two, one, go. All right, here we go. Lord of the Rings opening music gives me chills every time. I'm immediately in it. So I decided to do the extended version of Two Towers, even though I don't uh, generally watch it. I prefer the um, theatrical version, but since I'm doing the extended for the other two, I figured, why not? Let's just do it. It'll give me a chance to rip on the movies, which I really have very little time to do because there's so little I would change about them or at least have a problem with. So the Lord of the Rings title music is right here is an instant classic. And when you hear it in Fellowship of the Rings, you're, all, you're okay. I'm in. Shots of New Zealand. Seems just like gratuitous nature porn, which I have no problem with. I love gratuitous nature porn. It's the most beautiful thing in the world other than a beautiful girl or a beautiful man. Natural beauty. That's what it comes down to, people. 
but there's a reason we are here, and hopefully you've seen the the uh, first movie and know that they tried to scale Karhadras, which is a super high um, snow-covered mountain like these, and ended up going through the mines of Moria, the ancient dwarven home where they were slaughtered by orcs for digging too deep. And the Fellowship gets out alive, but Gandalf is taken down. And when I saw this in the theater, I was just like, yes, is exactly what you need to do. Here we go. All right, straight from Fellowship of the Ring. They don't change this at all. They cut up the pace a little bit, but all these shots are straight from Fellowship. And because if you've seen Fellowship, it was a year ago, and you're right back in the story. If you've not seen the first movie for some reason, you get this great opening special effects fantasy monster battle sequence. And this is what's so great about fantasy. As I uh, will have mentioned in the Fellowship of the Ring commentary, they nailed the Balrog. I mean, they took it from concept art that is considered canon by fans, but still, they absolutely nailed the Balrog. This demon from the seventh circle of hell okay so the big question is does Gandalf let let go on purpose or not and in the first movie it seems like not but in this movie you realize that he's had a vision basically which Saruman mentions actually about the Balrog um, and I did some research just before starting this I will tell you in a second about how significant this is because you're watching it and even if you're a hardcore fantasy fan you're going okay this is a really big monster from the pits of hell and Gandalf's kicking his ass that's great enough but when you read where the Balrog comes from and who sent the Balrogs and how Gandalf comes back to life it's beyond epic it's actually biblical um, and literally biblical when it comes to Gandalf coming back to life this just looks amazing. Um, I actually don't have the Blu-ray for this one. I'm watching the regular DVD. I'm too lazy to find the high-def file somewhere, but it looks unbelievable. That flame with the male chorus, and the flame's going out, it's going out, and boom. And so, like in most dream sequences where a pers one person is dreaming about someone else in a place or in a, or in a way that they couldn't possibly know, but I choose to believe that um, Frodo did see a version of what just happened there. He has an indelible bond with Gandalf and with the power of the ring, which he's resisting and not using in terms of putting it on, but I do think it confers some superhuman characteristics. This was cut out. This is the rope from the elves in the first movie. And Sam wanted a knife instead, and they gave him a rope. And we see that Frodo's still in command. See, it's interesting having watched Return of the King before this, because Elijah Wood is just so fucked up all through Return of the King. He goes from bad to really bad to incredibly bad to basically dead. And for most of this movie, he's still vibrant or way more vibrant than you would think, someone bearing that ring. Sam, what's, what's Sam so? Uh, Sam wants 
What's to save the spices? You know, this is the rural agrarian ideal utopia that Tolkien's obsessed with and that the hobbits represent. It's a great little box. There's probably a thousand props throughout the three movies that I would pay big money for that cloak or just the brooch, the leaf brooch that keeps the cloak on their necks. Oh my god. See, the problem is, is even though a lot of people who don't like Hollywood movies like this movie, and that was part of why it was successful and won awards, but is owned by a lot of people and rewatched and on television all the time, it has those Hollywood qualities. But the artistic work, this is great, the Elven Rope just knows to come down. Um, the artistic work in terms of costumes and ma- makeup and sets and CGI and locations. I mean, look at this. You know, they would f- literally fly helicopters to places just to film scenes like this. It was incredibly expensive. And they got three movies for 300 million US. That's 100 per movie. Age of Ultron cost 250. Even Terminator Genesis, which I think they knew would bomb, cost 150. They're paying 100 per movie. And it looks better than anything out there today. And fantasy so hard to pull off without being cheesy. And they really only get to the cheesy line like 0.1% of the time. And when they get there, they usually uh, ably jump over it. Hold on, gotta get the subtitles going here. It's on my PlayStation, I'm not totally sure what's going on. Okay, the Eye of Sauron. So, you know, they do establish that he's in great pain and, and Sauron is watching him or he can feel Sauron's presence. And Sam, this is already a big change. He has a look of wisdom and understanding in his eyes, even though it's understanding of something that's really bad and it's making him really uncomfortable, it's still there. And that's a big change from Sam at the beginning of the movie. Here's the Lumba spread joke um, in Return of the King. Commentary uh, talk about how while they did a really good job visually, it just works better in the book when you don't have to think about it too much. It just seems like they'd, as powerful as the food is, it seems like they'd run out too quickly. Sam, of course, is cool with it because he's cool with everything, as long as it's making Frodo happy. You know, their friendship is so unique. On The Return of the King, um, commentary I talk about, you know, people say, well, they're gay, or Tolkien was just hiding that they were gay. I don't really care. Anyway, honestly, if they're gay, great. If they're not, fine. Uh, Sam, at least, is in love with a woman who can't stop thinking about her, but... The bottom line is, they're brothers, you know, they're soulmates, and, and you know, you're, I'm sorry, your soulmate doesn't always have to be just your woman, or your man, or your significant other. You can have multiple soulmates, and they can be different gender types, and they can, you know, look different and be different. Although these guys aren't that different. Frodo's just richer and smarter, basically, and the one carrying the ring. This is in the movie. So the geography between the movies is a little tough because they're trying to get to Mordor through the whole first movie and they don't quite get there when it ends. In the third movie, they're already in Mordor and making their way towards the 
Mountain of Fire, Mount Doom, to destroy the ring. In this one, they're in what's called Emin Muir, which Gimli talks about at the end of the first movie, which is basically just, you know, an insane jungle of weird rock formations where you can never tell where you are. This is one of the great scenes ever in cinema, the half-covered moon with Gollum, and then we come from up top seeing him climb down like a spider or cockroach. And this begins the, the idea that he can't control uh, his inner monologue. He, he, he's been so lonely for so long. He, he talks to himself, doesn't even realize. Now, they're clearly ready for him, but I'm sure him talking to himself uh, didn't help Gollum's cause. All right, so this is the first physical conflict with them. And some of it is a little more transparent than others. So they're going, okay, so just Gollum, just Frodo, although he's, he's got the arms. Now, this is a big one. I think, is there a kick? Oh, no, he smacks Sam. That looks great, but it's a little far back. But this looks so real. His facial contortions and then his finger going on the ring and the ring moving. I do not know how they do that. I don't. I have to assume it was Andy Serkis in his white suit and they overlaid it, but I just don't understand. This, you can sort of tell he's, you know, tussling with CGI guy. Doesn't look as good as Return of the King, but when you first see this, and it's not harming my entertainment at all, honestly. It looks real enough. And it's fantasy, man. Just go with it. Sting. Yeah, Frodo can still be a leader, strong and assertive at this point. But in the third movie, he really doesn't have an him anymore. The change on Gollum's face is great. Now he's going into Smeagol mode, although he doesn't realize it yet. And actually, none of them realize that he has the two modes. I love this. He's like a, he's like a kid stuck in traffic in the back of a car at the parents. What do we get there? What do we get there? So he says Nasty Elf's twisted it. So it actually implies that it's hurting him as much as he's uh, making it seem because it's elvish and you know elvish material of any sort is inherently anti anything evil or wrong or unnatural uh, but, you know it's a little touch for the fans there doesn't matter whether you know the reference or not that is what we call writhing uh, some excellently animated writhing and here Gollum sees his chance the crazy part about Gollum is even though Sam is always ready to stab him at a moment's notice, once Frodo starts showing friendship to him, he is actually trustworthy. It's not until the end when he's tortured and goes back to bad Gollum that he becomes an all-out liar. I'm not saying he's totally on their team, but they do sell that, you know, not now, but a few scenes from now when Frodo has been nice to him, that he's starting to prize friendship which he's never had since he killed his best friend and got the ring and turned into Gollum but because he swears on the ring you know that's what he's thinking about and so Sam is right they should never have trusted him they would never have won if they didn't but from a but from a rational standpoint Sam is completely right
you know, the skin texture and stuff definitely looks better in the third. It's slight, but it is there. But scenes, okay, so shots like that are so convincing, the way the camera moves with Gollum. It's all about camera movement. This is pretty much the only Elijah Woodline I don't like in the whole trilogy. Coming up here. And it was an overdub, so I can't even be that mad about it. Here we go. You lead us to the Black Gate. You lead us to the Black Gate. More sloppy writing, really. More dynamic camera movement. Sal's Gollum. See, what sci-fi shows like Firefly and Battlestar Galactica did was put dynamic cameras in space during battles. And what I mean by that is they basically had free-floating cameras moving in space as if someone were in a spacesuit and rocket booster filming from space. So it, was, it almost had a documentary-like feel, even though you're just watching a CGI space battle. But the camera is all over the place, and it just sells the whole thing. And they finesse Gollum the entire trilogy with camera movements. Gotta go back to 2002. When this movie happened, people still had Jar Jar Binks burnt into their brain. A total failed CGI character in 1999 in Star Wars The Phantom Menace, Episode 1. But when people saw Gollum, uh, it, it was you know sort of universally agreed without saying anything that this was the first fully realized c CGI you know major character, both in terms of how he looked and moved and his place in the plot and his importance. So this is the beginning of you know the Orkai. Um, who were, well, the orcs are genetically modified anyways, but the Orkai were further genetically modified by Saruman, the white wizard, who is still very much in power right now. So they're, they're sort of super orcs. So the ones that look like that guy, the Orkai, they've got, you know, sort of square faces look like wrestlers. I think that was an added scene. Un unnecessary. Mad flesh. I actually like the reg these guys. Okay, so these are the normal orcs there with the pointy noses and ears because they're twisted versions of elves. So they actually look like just really ugly, twisted elves. They're, they're way more interesting to look at. And uh, one of the cool things about uh, Return of the King, the third movie, is it, it, it's mostly those kinds of really scary-looking orcs. 
Yep, there's the brooch. Would love one of those, even if it's smushed. So I love this. I mean, this is the perfect way to either introduce or reintroduce Aragorn. He's clearly smart and powerful. He's got crazy tracking skills. I love that Aragorn can even outrun an elf, basically. Gimli is sort of in the Hobbit's category in some way, because although he is a great fighter when he's in a battle, he doesn't have much mobility. He is short, doesn't have the speed or endurance as those guys, and uh, is often the voice of, man, this is happening in the movie and no one's commented on it yet, which you need. Just often the comedic voice, which he is very much and does a great job. I love this stuff. It, there's so something very meditative about the two towers. It's the least amount of dialogue. It's tons of nature shots. It just feels like the book, where the book has long sections of, of exposition and dialogue, but also has long sections of just describing these you know, beautiful natural environments that they are traveling through, which makes it very hard to read. Actually true, <laughs> dwarves are dangerous over short distances. Um, you know, uh, I'm a real plague nerd, gotta love it. Another amazing shot. I just, everything with Rohan and, and the country of Rohan, the people of Rohan, the Rohirrim, the soldiers, and the Theoden story, and Eomer and Eowyn, it's really my favorite sort of culture in uh, the book and in the movies. I mentioned that Eowyn and Eomer are my favorite characters, or at least, you know, outside the main, main characters. What do your Elphys see? So Aragorn has great tracking skills, but he can't see as far as Legolas. Yeah, I'm not sure where else they thought they were taking, the, um, the orcs were taking Merry and Pippin other than Saruman. Up oh, there's the Palantir. So well realized. Completely how I either envisioned it or wished I had envisioned it when I read it. You know, magical orbs are usually super colorful and have all sorts of crazy magic. This is just a communication stone, basically, that Sauron is in control of. We know there are nine. They're not all accounted for. We don't. Denethor has one, actually, but they don't, um, in Gondor, but they don't talk about that in the movie. So Saruman, at this point, is convinced that he's an equal to Sauron, which is exactly what Sauron wants, because it emboldens him. But Sauron's really in control, which we will see, and which we already kind of know. And, you know, in the first movie, Gandalf very definitively says, you know, there's only one Dark Lord, and he does not share power, basically. Some of the historical context of the movies, because they're so immediate, uh, from the time they start till the time they end, it's a couple years at most. But, you know, Gandalf and Saruman and the other wizards, there's a few others, are, I believe, called Maya or Maiar, and they're essentially embodied spirits who are sent to help man and elves. And so you have to realize that, you know, 
Saruman has been mostly or completely a good guy for, you know, thousands of years and is just turning now. So he just seems like, oh, this guy was obviously evil. Gandalf just fell for it. But they had known each other for thousands of years and nothing like this had ever happened. Um, they were actually sent by, I think, the Valar, one of the superior, um, you know, demigod races. But they just reflect the will of Eru Iluvatar, who is the one true god, basically, the one god above all. So this is like the, you know, classic Hollywood, you know, we're burning all these villages, but we don't know these people at all. So we need to meet at least one family in their situation. Um, you know, it, it's not the most original or compelling arc, but the actors do an excellent job. And just seeing Aon take care of the kids in that scene coming up a little bit later is totally worth it. Her motherly instinct. I just love it. So, you know, they sell that the mom dies, and then the mom ends up not dying. Who cares? Got to have a personal connection here. And that's the thing with these huge epic movies, whether fantasy, medieval, whatever. It's on such a massive scale, and it's so much armies versus armies, but you have to have some just regular humans, or you're like, what are we fighting for? What do we care about this for? And The Lord of the Rings manages to pull off... Um, the humanization of a story without really having a lot or any characters that aren't like nobles essentially okay so this was taken out this would be the one uh scene i would have left in well maybe one or two of two scenes i would have left in the theatrical cut anything with aomer and the rohirrim and the fact that they are well at war because what happens is when they take out these scenes Aomer just sort of describes to the trio, the main trio, Gimli, Legolas, Aragorn, that they've been fighting the orcs, but we don't see it. You always want show, don't tell. And this is the king's son, Theodred, and they do a good job of describing, um, the, you know, the impending death of the king's son without showing any of these scenes, and really even seeing Theodred other than just lying there dying in the theatrical cut, I totally would have kept this. I mean, I just, you know, this culture is so compelling. I just don't know why. Okay, so this is now theatrical again. The introduction of Eowyn, she is stunning. But she's stunning in a totally human and relatable way. You see her strength immediately. Okay, so yeah, so this is all we see of Theodred, the son of the king, Theoden, in the movie, the theatrical movie, which is why I would have added that other scene. And there's another battle scene with Aomer coming up that they cut out, I think.
And that's the thing. They can cut out that scene because Aomer sells the exposition, the exposition so well. Okay, they nailed Grima Wormtongue. They nailed this character. This is exactly what he's like in the book. He's a snake like Gollum, but he's more in control of himself. They probably could have made Theoden look a little less magically, you know, screwed up. Uh, I mean, he's so clearly under a spell, but Aelmer is still trying to reason with him. And what's great about Two Towers is they get this story going amazingly. Now, the bad side is once, once you know, Wormtongue maneuvers Aelmer's banishment, other than one scene with the trio, we don't see them till the end of the movie, but they really cushion the blow when you see Return of the King and how much Aomer and Eowyn have to do, especially in the extended edition. Yeah, Aomer really gets screwed in the... Ex- and Eowyn, too, gets screwed in the extended editions. Oh, oh I should say, in, in the cuts that were made to the theatrical versions because they needed to focus on the core, you know, eight of the Fellowship and Arwen and a couple others. This is great. You see his lust for her. She is attracted to him in a weird way. It's, you know... It's not the last time we see her hold his gaze like that. And this is exactly what I would be doing to a creep like this. In fact, I'd probably rip his head off. And this is back to my association of these two with my brother-sister relationship. And they sell immediately that Aomer has been out doing all the heavy lifting, killing orcs. And in the meantime, the king's mind has been taken over, and this snake is controlling um, Edoras, which is the capital. Luckily, um, Aomer still has like 300 horses worth of soldiers uh, loyal to him, which, you know, he, he saves a day in this movie and he saves a day in uh, Return of the King as well. So, you know, if you love Aomer and Eowyn in the books like I do, I think a lot of hardcore fans do, men and women then you just have to watch the extended versions. You just want as much of them as possible. Just don't get enough Miranda Otto. As amazing as her you know, battle scenes are uh, in Return of the King, just want more. Great actors, both of them. Carl Urban is also hilarious as uh, Bones, as Dr. McCoy, um, Dr. McCoy in, uh, in Star Trek, the Star Trek reboot. So neurotic and alcoholic, the opposite of this character. So there's a lot of running around in this movie. Um, And I'm cool with that because the photography is awesome. And this is how it is in the book. Pages and pages and pages of this stuff. They can do it in 20 seconds here. But, you know, Tolkien is describing all of these rocks and the hills and the types of grass and plants. And, you know, it's too much even for me at times. But it's so... if, If you can open yourself up to it, to his, you know, sort of environmental prose poetry... It's incredibly soothing and um, meditative. Mary's still making jokes through all this. I love this guy. The fat orcs who cut down the trees. So this is the beginning of the Ent storyline, which really works better in the books than in the movie. Um, I think they did really the best they could I would have changed a lot of things about the Ents, but at the same time, I'm not sure I could have 
or anyone could have made them really work outside of literature where, you know, they can be so much larger than life in a way you can't replicate on screen. So the Orokai, the, the big tough orcs, they have a lot more discipline than the your basic goblins and Mordor orcs. God, they look so scary. Never stops being scary. Or just creepy, uh, disgusting. This guy's great. I think this is a guy that chased them in the forest. Oh my god. I don't know how they make it you know, purely practical with this makeup and costumes, but it looks cartoonish. The guys behind these prosthetics just really know what they're doing. You know, they're probably wearing contacts. Their teeth are fake, obviously. Yeah, this whole thing about the elvish weapon for war, they don't describe that in the... Uh Yeah, you could have left that in, really, but it's also not necessary. We know they don't have the ring. This is a great Hollywood line here. <laughs> I'm not sure menu would be in the orcs vocabulary, but it's still hilarious and disgusting. I love just the entrails and everything. Kidneys and intestines. Lord of the Rings gets away with a lot for PG-13 because it's fantasy and it's monsters. So the way they revisit this part of the scene and what comes after twice is great. Right, this is the raid by the um, Rohirrim. It's great to see that even though Eomer and his people are banished from the kingdom, he's still fighting orcs because that's what good guys do. So there's a lot of great, you know, riding animals with bows and arrows and stuff. Horses and the wargs, which are the giant hyenas that we'll see. Um, this is sort of the one that has battles in really natural-looking settings because the, the big battle outside Minas Tirith and Return of the King is on Pelennor Fields, which is just a giant plain. And the battle is so amazing, it doesn't matter, but the fighting in the hills with the rocks and trees in this movie is really superior to anything similar out there. This is done so well. I mean, you know, these riders really know what they're doing. And, uh, you know, Aragorn knows he has to risk it. Yep, and this is exactly what they would do. They would turn around and encircle the group with spears. Very Viking. Sort of like a horseback version of a shield wall, basically. The discipline. See, it's important that they sell the, the, the strength, brilliance, and discipline because... You know, they win the final battle with their late entrance in this movie. And you have to be sold that, you know, 300 horsemen and horses would be able to take down all the orcs at the end. 
the Orokai. See, Aomer just seems like a badass at this point. He really is always a badass, but he does have a slightly more sensitive side, baby. Grey-eyed. And so this is where we see that Gimli has become super loyal to... Uh, sorry, that Legolas has become super loyal to Gimli, and by extension, the other way around. Come a long way since Fellowship, where they hated each other the first time they saw each other, because dwarves and elves hate each other. See, so Aomer sums up the situation immediately, so he sees that these are good guys. So now we learn that Thaden is lost. This guy's kin. Um, Aomer pieces together Saruman. I mean, the white hand, you know, is a little obvious, but I think Saruman is advertised to get, and so Aomer can put it together pretty easily. So this whole thing about the white wizard walking here and there, hooded and cloaked, is uh, setting up the Gandalf reveal, which we all knew was coming, but they still execute. Really well. I love it. It's like, we're looking for some orcs. Yep, we just killed all the orcs. And they only lost two men. Well, there's only two spare horses. I guess they could have lost some horses and men, but they didn't take very many losses. These guys are far superior fighters. Uh, far superior fighters, too. To even the Orokai. The super orcs. There are a lot of these in the movie. The sort of fake dead thing. They think Mary and Pippin are dead. They're not dead. They, then they think Aragorn's dead. He's not dead. Act of kindness that's totally... They could totally use those horses because sometimes when you're, you know, galloping horses for hours or days, they just die or run out of energy. A lot of um, horse uh, uh, troops or armies would travel with, you know, spare mounts for every single soldier in a time of extreme emergency. And they would literally ride the horses to death and then get on the other horses and then ride them basically to death to get to their destination. Didn't make them love their horses any less, but that is how it worked, people. More riding across terrain. They definitely found an extended location for all of the whole first part of the movie with these shots. Ugh, the burning corpses. But they're monsters, so no R rating. He's digging through it. So, you know... Okay, so actually Viggo Mortensen, when he kicked out with his left foot, broke his foot. And it, like, really screwed up filming for a while after this. But he would still film with his broken foot. That's a true story. I've heard it from many sources. None of which are him. Because he doesn't really talk to the press. But... You know, it, it, it's a scene that you're like, okay, they're going to be upset because they think they're dead, but they're not dead. But the emotion just sells it. And then the 
you know, Aragorn has a moment of just irrational, not irrational, of rational anger and frustration, but immediately starts applying his skills again. And I like how they don't make it obvious. They could have, you know, been like shown big uh, hobbit fingerprints and this and that, but no, it just is grass and it's just Aragorn seeing it through the grass, which is so much cooler. And then they, you know, they see that they cut, cut their, uh, their handcuffs, the ropes, gives you some physicality there. Yep, these are, those are the scenes that right here where they're running under the horse and running around people being small. That takes a lot of time and effort and money and people to do. But you, that's what sells it. That's what sells the hobbits. You just stop thinking about the fact that these people aren't actually hobbits. Right, and that's where the belt got taken, by the way, which ended up in the pile of the dead orcs. This is sort of a weird reveal. Oh my god, never would have thought they'd escape into a forest. Why did they run to open ground so they could be cut down easily? So, in the book, The Two Towers, one of the reasons I love the movie so much is I love the book. And part of the brilliance of the book is it is divided into two chapters. The first one is Frodo and Sam. I should say chapters, two sections, right in half, the whole book. The first one is Frodo and Sam. Oh, God, this guy is so scary looking. Um, the first one is just Frodo and Sam. And the second one is... This plot mixed with the, you know, the Aragorn, uh, Rohan plot line. And it might be the other way around. But there's no intercutting in the book. And it just builds suspense. Like, you would not believe. Because you're like, oh my god, I want to know what happened to them. And i got to go through this whole other section. It's absolutely brilliant. And they decided to cut it up in the movie. And they had to. Because it's how the other movies were. And audiences weren't going to go with, you know, an hour and a half straight of Frodo and Sam and Gollum. The slow fall. It's a great look by the orc here. He knows what's happening. I didn't really have any specific problems with the ends, to be honest with you. I, I mean, other than, you know, this looks a little fake. And then they have sort of the animatronic hands where they are actually being held up by something. So right now, you know, he's some sort of robotic arm. I was actually extremely <laughs> nervous that they were going to screw up the ends. And even though they only got about 80% there, um, both in terms of uh, sort of the level of technology as well as the design and visualization, when I saw it in the theater, I immediately took a deep breath because they sell the heart and soul of the ends and what they represent so, so well. Okay, shots like this, all CGI. Now, I have actually imagined the ends to be bigger when I read the books. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought that the, the hobbits would be that big in their, 
in their hands, or, or at least in Treebeard's hand, who's the head of all the Ents, or the tree herders, as they call them. Um, John Rhys Davies, who is Gimli, does the voice of um, Treebeard. If you didn't know that ahead of time, you might not know. Um, if you do know it, you can definitely recognize it, but he does some great work. Um, and they put some excellent uh, light computer sound effects on it. Yeah, to to sell it even more, um, not just sell it as not being John Reese Davies' voice, but to being an ant who can talk, but would sound a lot different from other living creatures when he talked. But the color and lighting is great, and, and the forest in the background, you know, which is partially practical in terms of set, and then they overlay the the CGI. Here, of course, is the pre-reveal of uh, of Gandalf and uh, you know it, it's one of those things that even if you didn't read the books you probably knew Gandalf was coming back um, it'd be interesting to see if they show Gandalf in the tr official trailers to the movies before it came out in which case you know even the average viewer who hadn't read the books would know I might take a break uh, during this commentary well I'll take a break anyways because it's so long and, and look up the trailers on uh, YouTube and see if he's there um, but again, because artistically it, it flows so well and, you know, they don't try and misdirect you to a sort of comical degree with each rewatching, it, it gets better. You don't even care that, you know, they're holding off on this reveal. You're just excited to see Gandalf again. The Dead Marshes is awesome. It's an awesome concept in the book. This is very much based directly on Tolkien's horrifying experience fighting in the trenches of World War One in France, where there would just be, you know, thousands and thousands of people slaughtered a day in these trenches, and they'd fill up with water from rain and flooding, and you can just imagine pools of, you know, bodies uh, that have been you know, drained of moisture, and, and their eyes are open, and th this is very much sort of the the World War One. I. I mean, the whole trilogy draws from his war experiences, but this is really kind of the, the visual manifestation of what he saw. Even Gollum's not thrilled about the uh, edibles. He won't eat the Lembus bread, as we saw. Anything elvish hurts him. Oh, here we see. Fredo is just starting to be nice to him. We know where this is going. It's these kind of scenes that Gollum looks so real in. It, the, the fight scenes where they're beating his ass are the hardest to sell, but when it's just Gollum... I mean, this just still looks great to me. People don't realize it's not just the animating. It's the color and the lighting that really sells it. The shadows. You know, the sun has to be hitting him in the same place as them. When, he, when they're in shadows. See, so the, the sun and the shadow is hitting him the same way. Now he's really starting to manipulate Frodo, who already is developing at least pity for, for Gollum, which is, uh, oh, here we go, the precious. Now Gollum's playing therapist, you know, oh, I know how you feel, let me help you. He's really trying to go for it. Eventually, anytime 
Gollum gets that close. In the future, Sam will be holding a sword to his neck. Sam's not quite at the point where um, he sees Gollum as a full-on villain, as he says later. I love that the, the swamps are just on fire, which would make total sense. There's probably tar and other stuff. So the notion is, these are the dead bodies from the Great War against Sauron, the previous Great War. So the chronology of the Lord of the Rings history is divided in terms of perspective of men and elves, you know, not, not god creatures, you know, earthly, middle-earthly creatures, is divided into ages. And there's always some cataclysmic event, usually a war, that ends one age and starts the next. So at the very beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, when Galadriel's voice is narrating the history of the Ring, we see that amazing battle sequence of the elves and humans against the orcs and Sauron himself. Uh, where Sauron's just killing thousands of people at a time, and eventually Isildur with a broken sword that will later become Aragorn's cuts off the ring from Sauron's finger. This is the place where it happened. These are the remains of men, elves, and orcs who have, you know, basically become permanently entombed in these in these pools in these marshes. This is a great effect. Ugh, sound and imagery there is amazing. Now, it's great to think about whether he's, whether what Frodo's seeing here is real or just hallucination. Given Tolkien's very sparing use of anything relating to magic or sort of mysticism or ghoulishness, it's probably some combination of, of real and hallucination. Of course, we do have the ghosts, uh, the cursed ghost soldiers of Gondor in the final movie who, who are very supernatural, so it, it's very possible that the, those spirits are there. So Gollum saves him, and this is where it flips for Frodo. Sam's really the one concerned, but Frodo saves him probably in the beginning of his plan of manipulation. And this is where Frodo, that was where Frodo started thinking differently about Gollum. So the previous scene and this scene are incredibly important to the entire trilogy because we just saw Frodo starting to have pity and even sympathy or empathy for Gollum and now he's petting the ring and Gollum is petting a fake ring it seems that Gollum is sort of half talking to himself and half to Frodo um, it's unclear whether he's sort of mocking Frodo by, you know, seeing Frodo pet the ring, and so he's petting his hand as a fake ring, or whether that's just something that people with the ring do. And I think it's the latter. And this is the beginning of Frodo as Gollum, their connection. Frodo seeing that he could end up like Gollum, and that he has to believe that there's some sort of humanity left in Gollum, because he needs to believe that there will be some left in himself when this is all over. This is an amazing shot. As always, Gollum looks great in Moonlight. 
the, the, these shots here over Gollum's shoulder and the the uh, the eye lines, the eye lines with Gollum and all the characters are always perfect because they model it with Andy Serkis and they measure exactly where he's looking and where he's standing or sitting and at all points. And so when it comes time for the actors to act out with uh, act it out with nobody there, they know exactly where to look. I love this. This is the introduction to the flying Nazgul. Um, the actual creatures they're flying don't really have a name in the book. They call them fell beasts. Fell being a, a term for like fall, fallen or evil. In the movie, they kind of uh, refer to it as, refer to them as Nazgul to separate it from the ring wraiths or black riders who ride the Nazgul. But really, the Nazgul is just the official name for the ring wraiths, and the beasts they're riding on are called fell beasts. But who cares? This is amazing. You hear it first, and then you see the guy, and then they pan back, and you see this glorious, evil, fell creature. Oh God, it looks so real. And the way they, the way they, uh, they pitch, um, and turn. I mean, it's just like a dragon, but it's a little bit more maneuverable. Yep, and this is where we find out that they have sort of voice activated spells that come from both the beasts and the ring race themselves that call to the ring call to the one who's carrying it frodo um almost gives in to the spell if you will that they are casting no tolkien rarely refer to spells or magic but this is certainly one of those cases I love that Gimli tastes the orc blood and that he knows what it tastes like immediately. It tells you all you need to know about Gimli. He spent his life, you know, trying to protect his own kingdom. People forget Legolas and Gimli are princes, basically. We learn in The Hobbit, or it's confirmed in The Hobbit movies, which isn't in The Hobbit book, that Legolas is the son of a king. He's a prince of the woodland realm of Mirkwood. And not, Legolas isn't a dark elf exactly, but he is a wild elf, or his people are. Um, unlike sort of Galadriel's people and El Galadriel's people in Lothorian and Elrond's people in Rivendell, they're more would traditionally be called high elves. But unlike in a lot of post-Tolkien fantasy, where you know wild elves are sort of morally ambiguous and high elves are sort of purely good. The line between the different types of elves and Tolkien are pretty gray, which I like. It's much more subtle. Elrond has a dark side. Legolas is actually acts more like a high elf than a woodland elf, whatever. You know, Gimli, of course, is scared and trying to make jokes about it. Uh, he's always the scared one of the three, and yet when it comes to battle, he's the most reckless of all of them, which you got to love. Here we go. That's a great shot of his eyes. Oh, here they mentioned spell. Yeah, he will put a spell on us. He'll use the voice, as I talked about, or I will talk about in The Return of the King. The ability to make people do stuff just by speaking, which we also see in Dune. This came first, obviously. And they don't call it the voice here. I like this. 
they just they they know they have to try and physically defeat him but there's no uh, at, at first i thought they was going to burn the sword completely but it just burned it enough to, to for him to drop in okay so that's christopher lee's voice this is all you know just playing up the drama so if if you say that think of this as like a 10 or 15 second speech so at second 0 it's Christopher Lee's voice and at the end at second 15 it's Gandalf's voice and then they merge the two of them saying the same thing and they do basically a blend where Christopher Lee's voice goes down and Gandalf's comes up this is such a beautiful moment though because of the music and the framing and just the instantaneous hope the, these three have really are hanging on to a thread. They lost Frodo and Sam. Now they're trying to find Merry and Pippin. And then he says, I am Saruman, or what Saruman should have been. Now, okay. I'm not going to talk a whole lot during this recount here because this battle with the Balrog is amazing. Unknown how he got through that water and now ends up on the highest peak. It doesn't matter. There's lots of different levels and dimensions of existence in worlds like Middle-earth, especially for beings as strong. So both Gandalf and the Balrog, even though they look and act completely different, both are extremely, extremely high on the hierarchy of powerful you know, beings that were really created from the, the original spirit world of not just Middle-earth, but the entire planet, which once was flat, and then became around. I won't go there. Okay, right here. The movie goes out of its way to not go through religious themes here. Even though Tolkien was a Christian, there are other Christian themes. But bottom line is, in the Tolkien mythology, it's pretty well established that it was God himself, not one of the gods or the major spirits, but Eru Iluvatar, the creator god, the one god above all, who sent Gandalf back. And that never happens. Eru Iluvatar has to sort of approve any new creations in terms of races or, or spirits or, or species. I like that Gandalf <laughs> doesn't quite remember who he was yet. But... Eru Luvatar rarely intervenes, and I think this was Tolkien's Catholic belief, or, or his version of Catholicism, was he believed in God being a creator, but he believed that the events of man were mostly left to man. Now, you know, obviously in The Lord of the Rings, you have many powerful beings and creatures that are more powerful than man, less powerful than God, but in this case, Eru Luvatar, the one true God, was the one who sent Gandalf back. And you have to realize what that means, because this is not the first battle between, you know, um, major forces of good and evil on Earth. Certainly not the first against Sauron, which we know ended the Second Age. And now we are, I didn't quite finish that before, now we're in the Third Age. And this will end up ending the Third Age after this giant battle and become the Fourth Age, where basically humans take control. But the fact that God himself would bring Gandalf back from the dead means a couple things, or could mean a couple things. The first is that he was really, really dead. I mean, you know, he, he was not just dead, but he was dead in some level of, of hell.
irrecoverably dead. That only Eru Iluvatar, the true god, could bring him back. But even more crazy, that the stakes of this war are even higher than we thought. That is as epic as the war against Sauron was, the end of the Second Age, which we saw at the beginning of the trilogy and the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, when Galadriel was narrating the history of the Ring, that something about this battle, the, st- the stakes are even higher. And, you know, the, the one true God would know that, obviously. And I think what we can take from this, even though this is not told to us in the movies or even s- totally in the books, I'm not sure Eru Iluvatar is even mentioned in the Lord of the Rings books. For those readers out there, uh, please email me. I will try and find it as well. Um, I love the, uh, you know, the slow-mo of the horse. Could be so corny, but what a beautiful horse and, and scenery. And Shadowfax is, is totally a character in the book, and I like that they treat him as a, as a person almost here. And, you know, Shadowfax ends up saving the day multiple times. In this movie, he has to get Gandalf a ridiculously far distance, a short time to get Aomer to come save the day. Has to get him and Pippin to Minas Tirith extremely fast in Return of the King. But just to wrap up Eru Luvatar, bottom line is, if you know that it was God himself that brought Gandalf back... We know how important Gandalf is to this battle, but we also know that it's possible that if Sauron gets control of the ring this time, he'll be a threat even to God himself, and therefore the whole universe, not just Middle-earth, not even just the planet, but beyond the planet. Um, I don't know what the cosmology is in terms of whether there are other planets or notions that there are other planets, but... So, you know... There's a lot of sort of environmental exposition between Treebeard and the two hobbits, Merry and Pippin, which is a nice break from all the doom and gloom and war going on everywhere else. But the fact that they have deleted scenes in this storyline they bring back just wasn't necessary. And this already slowed it down a bit. And while it's beautiful photography, and while Two Towers is clearly the you know ecological mission statement of both Tolkien and the people who made this movie representing Tolkien, and I'm so happy that they did. I love that they have trees that actually fight for their own survival against the excesses of industry and, and uh, militarism. Look at this photography. Just stunning. But they didn't need the extra stuff. We'll see that in, in a little bit. I like that he's so boring slash soothing and they're so tired they just pass out yeah see there i I would think that in my vision of tree beer and this looks great actually right here i don't know how they do that um how he puts them down with the cgi hands they must have put him down with something else and then overlaid it with cgi see when it's just him it looks great but uh, like for me his face it just his face would have been bigger significantly than the than the hobbits meaning you know if they were sitting on his shoulder from this angle from this far shot you would barely be able to see them 
Um, but I realized from a filming standpoint, they couldn't do that because you wanted to be able to sell that tree beard was big, but not too big that you couldn't see the hobbits. I just, in my mind, always saw the Ents as, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 plus feet tall. Sauron will suffer no rival. You know, Gandalf knows, as he's already said in the first movie, that Sauron does not share power. But this is this is the hope right here. Aragorn knows the heir of Numenor. Or, sorry, Sauron knows the heir of Numenor, who is Aragorn, knows that he's here. He fears Aragorn because Aragorn's ancestor is Sildor, is the one who defeated Sauron the end of the last age. Knocked the ring off his finger, cut it off. So they know there's war, but we also know that, you know, Sauron is not happy that Aragorn is in play, and not only in play, but becoming more and more central to the war, even before the war has reached a crescendo or really begun. They have one advantage. The ring remains hidden. And this is why you needed to sneak it into Mordor. You couldn't fly it in with the eagles or go with a big army. Sauron could deal with that. See, one slight inconsistency is that in this movie, Gandalf, who's now Gandalf the White and more wise and powerful, still has a great amount of faith in not just Frodo and Sam, but that they will succeed and that he must succeed and must do it with Sam. I love that that Gandalf didn't know that Sam went and how happy he is that Sam's there. Don't leave him, Samwise Gamgee. Don't you leave him. The Black Gate looks amazing. Oh my god. Watching this movie for the first time in the theater, I could not wait for the Black Gate because, you know, how can you make a giant gate so scary and evil looking? But they totally nail it. I mean, look at it. It's got spikes, but it's not over the top. It's built right into the mountain pass. It makes perfect sense. This is where the main gate would be. And, you know, what's interesting is Gollum does not know why Sam and Frodo are on this mission and what they're doing. If he found out that they were trying to destroy the ring, as he does in the final movie, he would not be helping them. Right now, he just wants the love and affection of Frodo and to just be near the ring, even if he can't have it. So these are the evil men from the south or east. This is great. Anything with medieval uh, horns. I love that they have these giant trolls that are just slaves, and they're just the ones who move the the uh, the gate open and close. It's the thing it is, you know, people think fantasy, and you just oh, you know, give up any sort of realism or or you know, practicalism practicality but you know, the the logistics work this is exactly how they would do it they'd have giant freaking trolls or ogres 
because they don't have advanced machinery. Now, in the book, um, it's a little more clear that all of these, you know, bad humans, the bad men who are now serving Sauron, it's, it's clear that they are somewhat under a spell of sorts, I believe. Um, and, you know, I, I, I talk about this from the Return of the King. The the bad guys, I mean, orcs are orcs, but if, if you look at the bad men, they tend to look kind of Eastern, Asian, Arabic in both their costumes and weaponry, and they put the all the, the, um, the eye uh, shadow or eyeliner on to make them look darker. But, you know, it's such a fusion of styles. It looks so cool. It's really not specifically Arabic or Asian or, or African or whatever you want to say. Um, and, you know, Tolkien and the filmmakers wanted to make them visually distinct from the good guys. These guys are really from a much different part of Middle-earth, dressed differently and... Um, as is our Easterling. So these are guys from the East. There's also the Corsairs from the South, which we'll see in the final movie, who are uh, on ships. Look at the courage of these two. I mean, they, they, they can't figure out any way to get in other than running through the gate with you know, thousands of bad guys there. And, and this this is where, you know... Good Gollum, or, or Smeagol, we should say, Good Smeagol, really comes into being. He's put it together. He hasn't put it together that they're trying to get the ring into Mordor to destroy it, but he has put it together that if they go this way, they'll get caught and Sauron will, will get it. And as much as Gollum wants the ring, and he's, he's playing with them, to a certain degree, he'd much rather Frodo have the ring than, than the Dark Lord, who we saw tortured him, actually. Sauron's people tortured Gollum at uh, the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring to get him to give up the name Baggins and Shire, which set off the whole adventure, because the Black Riders made it all the way to the Shire to come after uh, Frodo and the ring. Look at that. He's true. Gollum is truly scared. And he's been into Mordor in and out multiple times, sometimes by choice, sometimes not. So, you know, Sam. Sam is unable to parse what's going on here. There's two things. One, there's just Frodo's growing affection for Gollum, which Sam can't understand, both because Sam doesn't have the connection with the ring and because he's just not. He doesn't have that kind of depth to separate between good guys and bad guys. He just sees Gollum as a bad guy. But Gollum is irrational in this particular piece of advice. But Sam can't see past his just bad feeling about trusting Gollum. So this is an extended scene, and it looks beautiful. And in the book, it's great. It adds a whole new dimension to Middle-earth. And the movie's always trying to push those those dimensions further further out to make it seem bigger and cooler and more interesting and more complex 
and just more fun and fantastical. <laughs> Pippin's still uh, talking about smoking weed. God, he's addicted to smoking weed. Old Toby. Uh, is that their version of uh, Bubble Kush? Or uh, uh, White White Widow, Northern Lights? And in the book, this works because, you know, one of the huge sections of Fellowship that got completely cut out is uh, when the Hobbits are first running out of the Shire on their way to Bree to escape the Ring Race, they are taken into the custody of a very mysterious and seemingly powerful and all-knowing spirit of the forest named Tom Bombadil. And there's a lot of poetry and word games, and um, he has a beautiful woman named Goldberry, I believe. And um, the Tom Bombadil stuff is really hard to describe unless you read it. It's sort of taken, it, it feels like something from The Hobbit or even some of Tolkien's short stories for kids. Um, but it turns out that Bombadil, even though he just seems like a goofy little forest spirit, is extremely ancient, maybe older than the Ents. He might be from across the sea. We don't know. I mean... It, it, it's very playful, very cryptic, and absolutely had no place in the movies. I, I, zero. Um, this is them drinking this, the magic water that makes them taller, um, which, you know, in the book explains why the two of them end up becoming such good fighters. They end up being more like the height of dwarves than the height of hobbits, and just that extra size and strength um, allows them to become better fighters. You really don't need this for the movie. This shows that the trees are not, the trees are not bad guys, but they are amoral, not because they're immoral, they're amoral because they are trees, it's a forest. It's about their survival, and they don't, they don't love outsiders coming in, and these guys, they're running around where they shouldn't be, and so it's all about the power of the forest, it's so ancient that, you know, they don't have values and ethics the way we do, because... That's not how nature works. N nature works through dynamic process of reproduction and survival. So the forest is waking up. We already knew Fangorn Forest was, you know, kind of a twisted magical forest. But there's anger, they're getting wild and dangerous. Their thoughts are black. They have hate. I mean, you just don't normally see this stuff with force. And, and that's why, you know what, rewatching this, it actually, I'm okay with that scene. Partially because it's fan service to the book, where it worked well. And this just answers a lot of questions about, or at least brings up some, some questions you didn't think you'd be asking about a forest, about tr trees can't remember if this thing about the Ent wives and Ent children are, was in the original cut. And the fact that they just don't even remember. Yeah, they lost their, their women, basically, or their Ent wives. They lost them. It cannot find them. And this question is never really answered. And, you know, I'd have to go back to the book and the, all the Tolkien's, you know, supplementary works, of which I read only a little, although I researched a lot on the internet. Thank God for Wikipedia when it comes to Tolkien. It's still impossible to understand, but it helps a little bit. 
it's been so long he doesn't even remember what they look like and, and you know other than adding uh, like so, uh, sort of a cool little uh mystery here uh and just describing how in indes- uh and letting us know how indescribably old the ends are is just letting us know that middle earth is changing and it's mostly changing for the worse at least for now and at least for the ancient creatures from the elves to the ends things look really bad for men now obviously and they're the ones who are going to have to win the war but when the third age uh, the third age ends at the end of the return of the king with the destruction of the ring uh, aragorn becoming king uh, becomes the fourth age humans are the ones who take over for better or worse Eowyn's really trying. Oh my god. Sadness in her eyes. Her arc is so amazing because you can tell that she has inner strength and that her heart is pure. But at this point, you don't quite see the warrior uh, shield maiden coming. And he, Oh god. Miranda Otto. You know, people say there's beautiful criers and ugly criers. Um... You know, people say Claire Danes is an ugly crier. I happen to think that, you know, crying shouldn't look beautiful because that's the whole point, especially if if it's crying out of horror. But Miranda Otto manages manages to make crying look beautiful and really sad at the same time. He touches her. Again, she's a little attracted to him because of his manipulation of his words. He is able to use the voice a little bit. I wonder if Saruman taught him how to use the voice to manipulate people, or whether he has Saruman's power flowing through him, or whether he's just this much of a snake at the core. This little poetry is amazing. I don't really know what a hutch to trammel some wild thing in means. A hutch or a trammel. If anyone knows, please email me. Miranda Otto, I mean, her beauty is just so unique and, and fits this world and this culture so well. And she lets him touch her. Her brother's gone. Her uncle, his mind is lost. Her cousin, who's the son of the king, is dead. It's just her, and she's lonely, and he knows it. And he loves her, but manipulates her. He says, your words are poison. I love the way she storms out to the left. You don't say, I always, I love that. It's the angle of her storming out. Oh, God, Miranda Otto in a flowing white dress. She, she just, she is royalty. You just know it. You know, she's not technically a princess. She's, she's a lady. Like a duchess or something, because she's the niece of the king. Although, you know, if you know the books or know anything about how medieval cultures worked, that little symbolism there with the flag ripped off, you know that if the king has one son and the son dies, and the only other heirs are either a niece or a nephew or both, that they would, for the most part, be expected to take over. Aragorn seeing the ripped flag. Okay, so they built all of this, Edoras. They built that stuff at the top. The, the part we just passed towards the bottom of the mountain is some or all CGI, but this whole 
part of, of the the main hall and the in the buildings at the top of Edoras, which is the capital of Rohan, was all built. And they built it. They had to get permission from the New Zealand government because it's a protected area. And they took it all down. But they got two movies worth of, f- of filming. Oh, my God. Look at that shot. I mean, when you see this, you're just like, I never could have imagined um, the movie realizing the, the aesthetic vision of the book so well. Um, and because... Because of how detailed the artwork is, they're able to communicate so much in 10 seconds of shooting that would take Tolkien, you know, 10 pages to write about. And I love reading those 10 pages, but I also like watching the 10 seconds. You know, Gandalf is still pretending to be Gandalf the Grey. He's just pretending to be an old man. And the, this lead guy here, whose name I forget, who I think dies in, later in this movie, um, who's, you know, working for the, who's Theoden's guy, but he's really working for, for Grima. Because, you know, Grima's technically in charge. But you can see, and I think Hama is his name. Hama, uh, you can say, is not thrilled to be working for Wormtongue and gives in to Gandalf's request for the staff easily. I love the half-wig that Aragorn, you know, tried to not smile because he knows exactly what Gandalf is doing. Oh, he's holding Legolas's arm. I totally forgot about that, asking, acting like an old man. Look at that. I totally forget. That's great. And then you see the thugs. He's a herald of woe. I love this line. Courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late. Theoden King. It's great that they call him Theoden King, not King Theoden. Again, a very Scandinavian thing. We hear his voice for the first time. It's pretty monstrous. Gandalf Stormcrow, so that is what people who don't like Gandalf call him, because Stormcrow being a, a sign of foreboding or death. Calls him a conjurer. Lath spell, I'm not sure what that is. Ill news is an ill guess. That's a great line, I should use that. He calls him a snake, basically. To bendy crooked words with a witless worm. This is all from the book. Again, I don't know exactly where, but the the insults with back and forth with Grima, right from the book. I love just the just the hand to hand beating the shit out of them. Each, even though it's not John Rhys Davies doing the fighting, it's his body double to be dwarf size. <laughs> that guy, that's it's his double. I still buy it, and then. <laughs> I would stay there if I were you. I gotta love it. This is such a great scene. Every time you watch the movie, it's been so much bad news so far. And, you know, from from sort of the middle of Fellowship of the Ring until now, it's just been people dying, getting divided from one another, losing one another, people becoming evil. And this is where it starts to turn around in both the book and the movie. Oh, this is great. The way he projects light with his white robe. But it's not over the top. He, they could have whitewashed the entire screen, but it's coming from Gandalf. I have no idea how they... It's like there's a spotlight in Gandalf's chest. This is interesting. She's worried, but... And this is her being of her love for Aragorn before she even realizes it. She immediately trusts him, even though he grabs her. 
And that's just Aragorn's charisma. If you if, if you are a good person, you're a good soul, just the second you see or hear or touch Aragorn. So right, so now Saruman is directly speaking through him. This is great. This is a great use of Gandalf's magic. I talked about, oh, that's awesome. He really is actually hitting Saruman in the head, and he bleeds. So cool. And I talked to Return of the King about how, in both the book and the movies, Gandalf's magic is very specialized and very restrained. He is more a healer and a protector. He's a defender. He, he's more what you would call a cleric in sort of role-playing game terms as opposed to a mage or a sorcerer. Saruman's more of a mage. He can cause mountains to blow up and lightning bolts and also, you know, f- shoot f- fire. Um, look at that smile. Her watery eyes. And there's something about Miranda Otto that, depending on the lighting and the angle of the camera and what she's wearing, it can look totally different. It's just crazy. The difference between this look and the look that she was giving her dead cousin and then Grima. Look at that left eye. It's, it's so big. It's like behind her hair. Or sorry, that was her right eye. And, and, you know, he immediately now recognizes Gandalf to be a friend and vice versa. And so we know that... Unlike Denethor and Gondor, who we'll see in Return of the King, who, you know, also <laughs> is not a big fan of Gandalf when they first meet, um, and probably haven't always gotten along, you can tell that these two have. And uh, I can't remember if they mentioned this in the movie, but Shadowfax, Gandalf's you know, sort of magical white steed, was given to him by Theoden before Theoden became ensorcelled, I believe is the word. Again, the sword being the mechanism of uh, male self-realization. And it's so Viking looking, and this is great. He knows who target number one is. So does target number one. Um, you know, I don't exactly get why... Aragorn lets him live or or convinces Theoden to let him live because he actually when he when Wormtongue goes back to Saruman reveals to Saruman the one weakness at Helm's Deep that causes the giant explosion and allows the orcs to you know pretty much win that battle at the end until Aomer comes in to the picture to to save them with his horsemen you know, I think this is just the oh even oh this this is they took this out of the movie, out of the theatrical cut. Just that spitting part where where Aragorn tries to pick him up and he spits and then runs. In the movie, he just runs. You know, I think this is the um, let's see, does Aragorn bow with everybody else? Yep. More out of leading by example, I think, even though he's, in theory, the equal to Theoden. So Grima gives up the big secret, so Aragorn fucked up by letting him go. Okay, this is a scene that I actually do um, wish was in the main cut. This is the funeral of Theodred. Now, I think, other than time, 
there's a couple reasons they took this out. One, we never met Theodred. We, we, the first time we see him, he's nearly dead on the battlefield. And then he's nearly dead on a pallet in the palace while they're trying to heal him. And then he's just dead. And then he's here. So even though he seems to be a good-looking guy, maybe he would have been a cool actor. Does Eowyn sing? Or is she just crying? Someone sings. So you don't really have a connection to Theodred, although it still works to show how disheartened and depressed. There we go. See, Eowyn gets the sag. I, I can't hate on this scene. Anything where she gets to do different stuff, and she looks amazing. They really nailed the look of the uh, people of Rohan. Both the regular people and the soldiers, and the kings and and Eowyn and Aomer. That that armor he's being buried with is amazing. This is so hard, to, you know, for for as an actress. Oh, and it just ends. I love. See, they should have kept that. That was a cool scene. To sing in a dramatic way while crying and sing in a fake foreign language that was invented by some dude. Um, that's hard to do. So again, Eowyn Aylmer get a little screwed in terms of the sort of character building stuff that involves them. But, you know, they have so many great uh, moments both on and off the battlefield already and just make such an impression on you because of the, the actors and, and how great the characters are from the books that they're based on that I, I hope as actor... And as, as actors, the two of them don't felt like they were cheated. And the fact that they are fan favorites doesn't hurt. And also, I think Peter Jackson did a pretty good job of telling everybody that some of these scenes weren't going to make it, but that he was planning an extended cut that was going to go to DVD immediately, that PJ was planning that the whole time, and that you know, 10, 20 years after the movie was released, most people are going to probably watch the extended cut, hopefully. And that's what's going to live in people's memories. And so we get all that extra Aomer uh, and Aowen stuff. This is important to humanize Theod and how much he fucked up, even though it wasn't totally his fault. Yeah, Gandalf says some sort of prayer here in the, in the Rohirrim language. And then he just lets him mourn. Oh, this is a great transition, because you think it's just going to be straight to another scene, but then you see what... And then you, you can sort of recognize the little kids from before. I like how the boy falls off, and not the little girl. She's the tougher one. All right, here's the part I love, where Eowyn immediately adopts these children, taking care of them. And now she's saying what her brother was saying before they're banished. You know, wild men are burning shit, and, you know, his brother talking about how the orcs were moving. She's just taking care of them. And so this is an example, and we see this again to a lesser extent in Return of the King, where Gandalf is advising, but oversteps his bounds a little bit in his desperation to get Theoden to do what he wants. Right here. Theoden does not like him touching the throne or telling him you must fight. 2,000. So Amor is actually has 2,000 horsemen, even though we only saw a couple hundred of them. 300 leagues. I believe a league is 
oh God, I should know this. Six miles? This is uh, the distances in of Middle Earth when you look at the map and then the writing. It doesn't always make sense to me, but that's why I just recently ordered <laughs> the Atlas of Middle Earth, which I should have ordered a long time ago. Open wars upon you, whether you want it or not. I mean, again, Aragorn's right, and he gets pissed at Aragorn. And this begins the arc of the tension between the two of them that lasts pretty much until the end of this movie when he realizes that Aragorn is the better leader and then acknowledges in the next movie that Aragorn is the better leader. At least in this, in this situation. So he does the opposite of what Gandalf and um, Aragorn and the others, and even I think Eowyn maybe, are asking him to do, which is stand and fight. Now they're going to end up getting trapped in Helm's Deep, although they lose that battle, or almost lose that battle because Wormtongue tells Saruman how to breach it. Maybe they wouldn't, maybe they would have won it. Otherwise, uh, the bottom line is it's not clear that standing and fighting here against, you know, 5,000 Urukai would have been a great idea either. And as I say, you know, Helm's Deep has saved them numerous times before. If you look it up, just uh, Google it up, wiki up Helm's Deep, and you'll see some cool stories about that. But the, this is a different kind of foe. The Grey Pilgrim, yet another name for Gandalf. 300 lives of men, I've walked this earth, and now I have no time. So 300 lives of men, you know, even if people only lived... Uh, you know, 10 years, that would be 3,000 years, which is the whole age. So uh, the math actually works out that he's been around since the beginning of time, or at least the beginning of time as it exists on this planet. I'm sorry, a league is three miles, not six miles. So, what do you say, 300 leagues, 900 miles? That's a lot of miles. I, I don't know how, even if you're riding 50 miles a day, that's 18 days. Now, the distance stuff, I don't really blame on the movie. It's not blame. I, I, I don't lay it to responsibility on the movie, because that's usually taken from the book. This is a great part where we show, you know, how Aragorn can calm animals and speak to them. He actually grows great affection for this horse. And the horse actually saves him in a little bit. Oh, that's Theodred's horse, her dead cousin, the son of the king. Here's some more... Dialogue. I can't remember if this was in the original cut or not. Like everything with Eowyn and Aragorn, I would have kept it. You know, part of what attracts Eowyn to Aragorn uh, here, she recognizes that he has the magic of the elves. She's fascinated by the, the elvish connection that he has, the same way the hobbits are. And here's his backstory. I was raised in Rivendell.
whenever he explains the stuff to her, like later about Arwen, she doesn't quite understand. She is she's fascinated by obviously his his studliness and his bravery, his courage, leadership, but he also, having been raised partially by elves, is fascinated by that as well, just as we are fascinated by his connection to elves. So in that sense, Eowyn is serving the uh, as the as the, the the voice or the ears of the audience. You stink of horse. Uh, 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 this is all about Aragorn. So Saruman didn't know that he was a Dunedain ranger from the north, but he had a ring. Two serpents with emerald eyes. That's the symbol of the, uh... Oh, there's the ring that Aragorn has. The ring of Brahir. So now Saruman thinks that you know, this could be Isildur's heir, the lost king of Gondor. Saruman doesn't believe it or doesn't want to, unlike Sauron, who is scared of nothing except the only thing Sa the Sauron, who's, you know, was basically created by a god, or was at least a higher spirit that was corrupted to evil by, like, a demigod. Sauron's only afraid of two things, and they're related obviously one is the ring being destroyed and one is the heir of elendil and the sealed door and the kings of gondor who were the last ones to to take him down oh this is great all right so this is this is as a fan you know eowyn's not going to kick butt in this movie but you need this whether you read the books or not to get you pumped and foreshadow when she does kick ass. She does a great job with this. They really did that, by the way. I mean, watch this. This is hard to do right here without hurting someone. That, that's really hard to do. So normally with these swords in movies, they are made of metal, but they're not sharp. Um, and the sounds are, you know, edited or added later. I fear neither death nor pain. Aragorn's always a little condescending to her. Yep. She wants to be one of the guys. She wants to be valorous and brave and fight in battle and not just be married off to someone. Take that, Game of Thrones. Where's Arya, by the way? This is what Arya from Game Arya Stark would be like in, you know, ten more years, I would hope. And he gives her inspiration, and now she's really starting to fall for him. But, you know, it's... She's in such a delicate emotional state because of what her uh, uncle went through, which, you know, now he's, he's out of, but still sort of dealing with psychologically, her, the banishment of her brother. Wormtongue didn't rape her, obviously, but he did sort of violate her a little bit emotionally, I would say. And now her, you know, the lives of all her people are 
hanging in the balance. They're running from their home. And here's where, you know, Warren Tung starts giving his advice about how to take down the Rohirrim. They should have killed him. But just back to why Aragorn told Dayton not to kill him, I think that was just the Hollywood moment of, we need our central hero. You know, there's this trope of, you know, we're going to be better by, than the bad guys. We're going to be morally better than the bad guys by not killing them. And uh, that was ill-advised, obviously. This is great. This is where you start to love um, Gollum. You know, we're, let's see, we're about an hour, a little more than an hour and a half in. About halfway through, and you just you see playful Gollum, who probably hasn't felt this good in a while because he hasn't had friends in a long time. And at this point, you're almost on Frodo's side a little bit because a Frodo's right that they need him as a guide. B Frodo's right that that Sam can't understand the pain of the ring that these other two can. And see, you know, Gollum does seem like he's turned a corner, that he is Smeagol now. He calls himself Smeagol. He's not talking to himself anymore. Or at least not as much. And there's, that's Frodo's first blow-up at Sam. And he, Sam was kind of asking for it. Frodo still feels bad, but Sam knows where it's coming from. And this is also where Sam begins to, you know become smarter, basically. He, he's able to see what Frodo can. Frodo can feel the burden, but Sam can see what the burden is doing to him. My task. Mine. My own. The only thing he doesn't say is my precious, but Sam calls him on it. Don't you know who you sound like? It sounds just like Gollum. This shot of Elijah Wood clutching the ring just tells you everything you need to hear. Everything you need to see. Alright, so this is the twist of Gollum slash Smeagol's character. Smeagol has been taking over. Good Smeagol, the one that wants to help the hobbits. Look at him. He's very sweet. What I like about this is in the, in the third movie, they have a great device where he's talking to him, his other self looking into a pool. But this is just, you don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. It makes me laugh every time. Oh, poor, poor, poor Gollum. Look how different he looks. Now, there's, there's a few things. When it's Gollum, when it's bad Gollum, eyes are bigger. The shape of the face is a little different. The lips are different. That is not a mistake by the effects team. This is how you sell someone talking to themselves and having a split personality. And that's why Gollum is one of the great all-time characters in literature and why you can't just say he's one of the great all-time villains. He is one of the great all-time villains, but he's so much more and despite the fact that he's been pretty bad up till now and will start being bad again by the end of the movie, he wants out of this 
toxic, <sighs> fucked up, you know, split personality uh, relationship. Yeah, the leave now and never come back thing is great. Bad Gollum in his head is getting really angry. Just a little touch of music there. And now we've gone, this is the, that was the bad Gollum camera angle right here, but now it's just Smeagol. And so this, again, this is mirrored in the third movie when Bad Gollum takes over again and Sam beats the shit out of him because he overhears it and Frodo is, you know, taking Gollum's side because at that point Gollum has him under his spell. This is great. And this is, this is actually the end of Good Gollum, which is so brilliant about this movie is that, you know, we've just had this major character breakthrough or even Sam, who's still very distrustful and sickened by it. You know, Sam just has an instinct that knows that this can't trust this guy. He, of course, is, you know, disgusting Frodo, but he, he, he thinks, Colin thinks he's done good. He did do good. They need some real food. A brace of conies. People probably, I mean, you can see that they're rabbits, but otherwise you'd have no idea what the hell they're talking about. A brace of conies. This is a great scene. He's disgusted by the cooking of food. He's so used to raw flesh. You know, and Sam can't even give him a little credit for getting the rabbits. There's not any meat on them. Yeah, it's great. Don't make up food. They eat potato chips. They eat fish and chips. This is based on rural England, people. That's great. What Tolkien just knew it. Frodo knows something's up. This scene is fantastic because, I mean, not only is it awesome to see the 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 evil men who are going to Sauron, the wicked men. It's interesting because we saw other ones before. Um, their uniforms are similarly kind of. Middle Eastern, Indian, Asian, but not sure if it's the same people. Yeah, and, and when and when Smeagol is Smeagol and thinking rationally, which is very hard for him, he knows what's going on. He's been to Sauron's lair, was tortured. He's he overhears things. He spies on people. That's what he does. He knows the war is coming. And the Hobbits do too, to a certain degree, but Gollum just lays it out there. And then they get to tease the Oliphants, which are, you know, maybe the coolest part of the action in the third movie, which has a million cool parts of action. But 
they smartly tease uh, tease the olifants, and uh, you know generally the the effects get better in each movie, but these look pretty much as good as the the ones in Return of the King, where there's not just two, there's like two dozen or something. Also introduces us to the Gondorians, who, at least some of them, are trying to fight. Led by Faramir, the younger and unfavored son of Denethor, the steward of Gondor. Like that we meet Faramir. Faramir is one of my favorites in the books, right along with Eowyn and Eomer. And for similar reasons. They are characters of nobility, but they're not kings or queens or princes or princesses. And they have to succeed where their fathers and uncles who rule have failed. They don't have superpowers like Legolas or Aragorn. And he's not huge, hulking, you know, wrestler slash warrior brawler that his older brother Baramir uh, was. They took this out actually. I wish they'd kept it, especially because it obviously looks like it, like someone not from Europe. But Faramir has compassion even for people he kills, at least humans, don't think he would feel that way about orcs. But orcs were bred specifically for one thing. Even these wicked men, as Gong called them. Yeah, that looks like the, uh, it looks like the kid from Stargate. Looks like, uh, James Spader's little buddy from the original Stargate. Got that boyish look to him. But they took it out. So... If you don't know about the horrors of war, um, not sure that would have helped you. This is great. There's not enough Gimli in Eowyn. It, it, it would make total sense that Gimli's constantly falling in love with like the princesses of, you know, other races. Even though he's such a hardcore dwarf nationalist, he falls for Galadriel. He's got a little thing for Eowyn here, and this of course addresses the dwarf women thing, which is hilarious and awesome. If if you're into fantasy in general, it's the general lack of dwarf women and what they would look like. Apparently they do not have beards, but still look like the men. It was deliberate. Alright, everyone's smiling. Oh man, this is the backstory to Eowyn. I totally forgot about this. Her father was killed by orcs. And his, his feeling that he failed her as a surrogate father. So are they not biologically related? Not really clear. So this is the cooking scene, you know. I, I, they do spend so much time, at least in a number of moments... To, to build her growing, uh, well, to build their growing mutual affection, but hers is more romantic, his is more platonic. And, uh, you know, it's funny that being basically a princess, it's not surprising that she'd be a horrible cook. It's possible that the diet 
is is just weird to him. Um, you know, if this were a TV series, if they made this into like a a full season, like ten episode television series, then I could see keeping this. But it just makes her look a little girly. Uh, he tries to get rid of the food. They try and throw some comedy in the movie. It works better with one-liners. It just is... Oh, and this is where he he uh, reveals how ridiculously old he is for a human. Uh, and this is, again, her fascination with her. With with his otherworldliness, the fact that he is human, kind of, but he's doing the day, and he's basically between humans and elves in terms of age and power. So she knows about all the legends of Numenor. You can tell how fascinated she is. I would have gone straight to this and kept it. I would take out the cooking, and uh, yeah, I would take out the cooking eating bit and just have them talk about him being a descendant of Numenor and and reinforcing to the non-book audience that he is special on a genetic level and while that may make some of us uncomfortable in terms of its implication that the people with the best genes should rule uh, you know there it is now he's thinking about about Arwen and again if you're going to sustain the love story they actually see each other in the first movie, and then they see each other at the end of the third, but between that, they never see each other. So you have to have flashbacks and visions and dreams. And this is one of those totally corny love scenes that I have no problem with, because I love Arwen. Liv Tyler's great. I, I, they needed to do this, and, you know, for, for the, the ladies out there, or, or anyone who likes a little bit of... You know, romantic stuff in their movies, and that includes me. I'm okay with it. You say, oh, well, it's overly lit. Yeah, well, it's a dream, and it's, it's Rivendell. That's what Rivendell looks like, and that's what she looks like in Rivendell, and what he would look like in Rivendell. You could imagine this being sort of a vision of a future where there's no war, and they're just a couple, um, or a past even, where Aragorn was never forced to leave Rivendell in the first place, which is why and how he fell in love with her. And this is what gives Aragorn strength. Uh, it's always about a woman. Not with Luke Skywalker, though. It was never about women for Luke. Neo certainly needed Trinity. Zoe Saldana in Avatar was what kept Sam Worthington motivated, I suppose. Uh, I guess <laughs> Zoe Saldana could motivate me to do pretty much anything. Interesting shot of Liv Tyler's body with the necklace, but it I'm an appreciator of beauty. Men women or otherwise and she is a beauty and a really solid actress more than a solid actress
So Eowyn is um, it, the true niece of Theoden, which I believed. So yeah, in, in the books, when she was seven, her father was killed fighting orcs. So we know that Rohan has been fighting orcs from long before. And this is this is a memory of before they left Rivendell in the first movie to begin the quest as the Fellowship, where Elrond basically says, stay away from my daughter. He hates the idea that she's staying for him. He says she belongs with her people, the elves, but he means himself. That might have been in the extended edition of the Fellowship, and then they just replayed it here. I cannot remember that. And this is a more extended flashback. And this is where he tries to give back the necklace. We see that he, he takes Elrond's words to heart, and he doesn't want to be the reason that she doesn't go with her people to the Undying Lands. Quick note, in the book, as in the movie, uh, Aragorn makes indirect allusions to Eowyn, like we previously saw with... I'm sorry, Aragorn makes indirect allusions to Arwen when speaking to Eowyn without really saying specifically who sh or what she is. Uh, Eowyn clearly can sense his, you know, elvishness, uh, even though he's not an elf, but that he's lived with the elves, that he lives a long time like the elves, that I would think Eowyn might put together that love of his life um, was... An elf. It'd be interesting to see if people from sort of more rustic human cultures, uh, like the Rohirrim, um, Rohan, that here she is. She's still waiting for the answer. So, uh, based on the added scene where Eowyn talks about knowing about the Dúnedain and Númenor and the bloodlines and all this stuff, when he tells her that she's going to the Undying Lands with her kin. I, Eowyn seems well smart enough to put it together that she's an elf, but she might just be having process, uh, be having trouble processing it, um, because it's such a weird concept in their society. The wargs are great. You needed a cool battle in the middle of the movie. The wargs look great. The, the orcs always look amazing. Never get tired of skewering orcs. You know, it makes sense that there'd be an ambush on the way. Can't remember if it quite happened like this in the book. But for the movie, you need it. Because remember, um, in the book, you're reading the entire, you're reading this entire story, and then you're reading Frodo and Sam's entire story in two separate halves that do not intertwine uh, in terms of the structure of the book or the two acts of the book. Here they're going back and forth, so you have to keep the action moving
as the storylines go back and forth, especially because there's not much going on with the Ents. You know, Frodo and Sam are now captured, and, you know, they're not going to be doing anything for a while. Um, <laughs> Gimli riding the horse is great. His his body double, I mean, I, I don't know. That looks just like John Reese davies I don't know how they do it. I love the way Aragorn turns his horse here. His horse riding skills are amazing. He's so convincing. And this is what I love about this, this whole thing, other than Legolas just picking off wargs at like a thousand yards, um, is the camera movements are so dynamic. This battle looks real in a way that even some of the battles in the third movie don't look. Yeah, air guards have a trouble putting a sword down there. And then they have the collision here, which is classic. I mean, this is all, like so CGI for the most part. When the collisions are happening, anything gets knocked way out. You know, this is a totally CGI warg. Looks great. A Ghibli falls off the horse, um, seemingly by accident, but I think he was excited to get off the horse. He hates horses. This reminds me of the, the creature in Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters from the 80s. I can't remember what it was called. So, you know, now they're starting to, to bring up the whole counting thing, which is a running gag throughout Two Towers and Return of the King, where Legolas and Gimli, who very much distrusted and disliked each other on their first meeting because of the, you know, sort of, uh, intolerance or even racism between elves and dwarves. But they bond over battle. They bond over the fellowship, helping Aragorn, saving their hobbit friends. So they, they bond over these other things, but battle is the main one. And I always wonder if, if Aragorn saw that that was Gimli or just someone was in distress. Oh yeah, you could see it was Gimli. So they have this whole counting thing where they are always shouting out in the middle of battle how many kills they have. And in any normal circumstance, I would think that was either corny or, you know, just in very poor taste. But it works so well in the books. It's one of those things as a kid you just remember loving because these battles were so dark and the good the good guys were so rarely winning and, and to just have these two fearless guys who are slowly becoming friends and the way they bond is by pushing each other to be even better warriors. It just works. And, you know, there are probably some parents out there who didn't love their kids watching them gleefully killing. And now it helps, again, that they're not gleefully killing humans that would never sell. Um, the conceit, as a reader or a watcher, the conceit of the Lord of the Rings in general are the orcs being pure evil. The, you couldn't even, you know, even if you captured one and tried to retrain it over months or years to be not evil, you couldn't. And they were, they're twisted elves. They are basically kidnapped elves that, that they breed in, in pits. And their only purpose is killing in war and obeying Sauron and killing all the the races of Middle Earth. And so, uh, you know, you just they're the ultimate big bad guys, and you have to. I hate to say this because I'm an anti-violence person, 
but have to almost enjoy the killing of them. Not the killing itself, but the good guys figuring out ways to win. And that's why the counting thing works for me in the book so well. And because I love the, the competition of kills in the books, um, they, they actually use it even more in the movies. And I just love it. And I think it would work great even if you'd never read the books. In fact, it's made for a movie. When, when Legolas kills the Oliphant by himself in the in the Lord of the uh, Return of the Gig, and he surfs down the trunk as the the, the horse the uh, Oliphant is is falling, and the, uh, Ghibli just goes, "That only counts as one." That still only counts as one. They give up on Aragorn pretty quickly. Oh no, you'd think maybe they'd go down and check it out. You know, we know Aragorn has superhuman abilities. He could probably survived that fall, and in fact he did. So I actually wasn't a huge fan of the fake Aragorn death. Um I don't mind it. And it works from you know, filming standpoint. But you know, the death of Aragorn is for to show how strong he is. It's for the Arwen connection to re-enter the movie as well. The whole thing is worth it because the horse saves him. And there's a great story about the horse, I'll tell you. The, ho the horse physically lifts him up, which I'll tell. And then, you know, I guess the main reason would be for Eowyn's heart to be broken completely with Aragorn's death. And then her just pure relief and joy when he's alive. And then that's mirrored in uh, The Return of the King when, you know, she finally almost confesses his love t to him. And he, you know, tells her, I'm sorry. You know, I don't, you're, you're in love with the wrong man, basically. He rejects her. And the, the look on her face after that scene in the final movie is, you know, as upsetting as her reaction to Aragorn being dead here because like she's dead to or he's dead to her in the third movie although she gets over it finds her true love and restores her bond with Aragorn you know they really I think the idea is even though the kingdom of Rohan has seen a lot over the years even in her short time as a you know, as, as the niece of the king, as a, as a lady or a princess, noble lady. She said she's still a little naive. She probably hasn't left Edoras a whole lot. She clearly knows how to fight. She can certainly ride horses. She's been trained to fight. But, you know, it went from just being a problem with Grima Wormtongue and Saruman and her uncle and her, her and her brother, but... When the events of the coming war of Middle-earth enter her life, which includes Aragorn, but also Gimli and Legolas and magic and elves and wizards and stuff that she had never encountered before, just heard in legends. So I, I don't think she is, you know, sort of truly naive the way that probably some of the peasants are, because she, she is very well educated and experienced, but she had never, you know, been forced to deal with, with scenarios uh, like this before, or even people like Aragorn before, and you know it's when you when you first f really fall in love, not the like kid love, but you know as a young adult, and whether that person returns 
your your love or not, especially if they don't, it's such an existential event where you really have to re-examine everything in your life, starting with yourself. And I think they needed scenes like the previous one where she thinks Aragorn's dead to start building her towards a level of almost, you know, unconscious bravery and heroism that she always had, but that comes to her in the time of greatest need and in, in the final battles and in, in, in the final movie. This is great. This is the first time we've seen an army this big really ever, certainly in the trilogy. Um, it's somewhat similar to what the army looks like in, uh, the final movie, Minas Tirith, although there are, you know, I think 5,000 soldiers here. I think of Minas Tirith, there's like 20,000 soldiers, and they do a good job of selling that, as big as this is. The gates of Minas Tirith, the orc army in the final movie is, you know, many, many times bigger. This is a great shot. This is just so seamless. And again, when you're dealing with armor and orcs, if you you can CGI them from a distance, and it looks phenomenal. And there's a tear from Worm Tongue. That's so hard to pull off and film. They always have this great camera angle on Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman. It's like right up against the bottom of his face, pointed up. And his head takes up the whole frame. This is cool. Now we can see that they are still a ways away from... from uh, Orthanc, from Saruman's Tower. In Isengard. Treebeard knows that something's going on, but it takes Pippin's somewhat brilliant plan towards the end here to get Treebeard to understand the, the true, true impact. Interesting to think whether they're actually higher up than Treebeard's eyes. I wonder if Pippin sees some of the dead trees, and that's how he comes with the idea of tricking Treebeard, uh, Treebeard to taking them one way so that Treebeard sees how many trees have been killed and decides to launch an all-out ant war against Saruman and Isengard. So Isengard is sort of the you know name of the town or the area, or thank as the tower itself. Saruman is the wizard who dresses in white, but now Gandalf is the white wizard. Yeah, the kiss that wakes him up. Yeah, I could probably do without this, but you know, they need to keep Liv Tyler active. She's sort of to him what um, Galadriel, played by uh, played by Kate Blanchett, Galadriel, who's the queen of the elves in Lothlorien from this first movie, and it's just basically ethereally beautiful and charismatic. Um, Kate Blanchett, through her, her spirit, helps Frodo a few times. Okay, so this is all real. They got the horse to do this. He's lying there, and then they had to train the horse to sit straight down right next this right there and most horses they would just roll over on the person and crush them and Vigo not only agreed to do it Vigo Mortensen not only agreed to do it but he does not move hardly when that horse sits down out of sheer fear I would have just rolled out of the way every time 
and and then the horse sits and kind of gives him a little nudge, and that's when he wakes up and grabs onto the horse. Little stunts like that are both, you know, um, exceedingly difficult to execute, but also are just dangerous. And there's nothing. They don't seem like one of the more dangerous stunts, but it is, because whenever they're climbing huge rocks and mountains and whatever, a lot of that's on sets or CGI. So they're not in any real danger there. When they're fighting with the weapons, you can always break something, but the, the weapons are dull. There's no sharpness to the points or the edges of the weapons. But that little thing, the the horse could just fall on him. And now here's Elrond working his his uh, little bit of negative m magic here on his daughter. Now, in the third movie, there's some continuity issues here. He's basically saying there's no chance that they're going to win the war. But even if they do, you know, Aragorn will die, we'll all be gone, and you're going to live forever and have nobody. Even until the, you know, the end of the world itself. Millions of years, potentially. This is a great speech. And glory undimmed before the breaking of the world. They sell the end the world so well not the end of the world as in terms of apocalypse just the physical world you know living out its lifespan of a few billion years or whatever of course this would all be ash and dust but it just looks great the way they 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 sort of um, reduce the color and the filter slowly to show the passing of time is great and there's just enough purple and blue here where it's not black and white and so Elrond, her father, and the king of the Rivendell elves is saying, even in the tiny chance that they, he wins the war, you'll only experience a tiny, um, you'll, only experience, you'll only experience a minuscule fraction of even his own extended life, and then you'll be alone. It, it'll, it'll be like, uh, it'll feel like a minute that you're together. And now she's broken. Because now he's gotten her to believe that the, they can't win the war, and even if they do, she'll be parted from her, her lover. I'm sure she's considered this, but, you know, her dad's really putting on the hard sell here. Very un-Agent uh, Smith-esque, uh, though, I will say. It's not like, when, when Hugo Weaving has to be a little dark as Elrond, because Elrond is, you know, very much a good guy. I mean, he, he's been a good guy for like thousands of years and will continue to be one. But he does have a little bit of a darker side to him in terms of his, you know, the sort of the chances that he gives humanity uh, to succeed and survive. But when he has to channel that dark side, it's not coming from the, you know, the Agent Smith dark side it's very human it's very love of his daughter and for you know a, a face and a voice and an actor like Hugo Weaving that is so associated with one very specific almost cartoonish role as Agent Smith he just sells Elrond you know I, I never I was never distracted by by their you know inevitable uh, resemblance and even here he's not quite sure he did the right thing he feels horrible about having to basically bully his daughter and here's some more elvish speaking that does not have subtitles which i love 
And they just keep bringing in all the characters, even if they're not sort of literally in the story or physically. You know, it makes total sense that, that Galadriel and Elrond can just, you know, telepathically communicate to each other at any point. They're, I think they're cousins. They might be brother and sister. I can't remember. They're definitely related. Again, even with the elves, the genetic lines mean something. They're both prophets. They can see the future, or they can see possible futures. And this is a great way to do a montage with, with a narration that doesn't feel like a montage with a narration. And, sh and this is her putting uh, put some pressure on Elrond to help. Because Galadriel, from the first time we meet her and her relationship with Frodo, although she's very dark at points because she wants to show Frodo how horribly things could go wrong if he fails, also is a big advocate of this mission and of Frodo in particular. And so she's, she's putting the screws to Elrond a little bit to consider helping the humans a little bit, which he does do in this movie and does again in a very different way in the third movie in regards to Aragorn. See, this is great. You can just use the body doubles because they've got the full facial blindfolds. That's convenient. Yeah, seeing the... Okay, so framing Mount Doom in the background with the... With the the Dark Tower right there. Just amazing. Straight out of my imagination reading the book. Really scarier. So this is a painting of the very first scene in Fellowship where um, Isildur, the son of Elendil, king of, uh, of Gondor at the time, took up his father's sword and, and cut the ring from Sauron's hand. They bring out the map. Um, the map, I believe, appears in all three movies, possibly multiple times in the first. I, I think we definitely see it in, in all three. Uh, we know in this one, in the second, for sure. Yeah, it just gives the average watcher a little bit of geographical um, positioning. By the way, they're looking at basically nothing at this point, and then all these hand shots are other people doing the hand shots. They don't always have these things ready for shooting, and they don't want to waste the actor's time shooting just someone pointing at a map. Gondor is weak. I love that Faramir gets that Gondor is weak. Boromir, the older brother who died saving Pippin and Merry, his older brother, so full of hubris and arrogance that he, he insisted Gondor was strong almost up until the end, even though he knew that he, he was lying to himself. You can sort of tell this is a green screen, but it works enough. But the fact that, you know, at the very end, Boromir admits to, um, to Aragorn that he's having doubts about the strength of his people, and Faramir, being the younger brother, who is um, considered far inferior by his father, but who is really, other than not being as big as Boromir, and superior in every way, is a better overall fighter, is way smarter, way more wise, knows the situation, knows that his country's weak. Now the ring brings out a little Boromir in him, which makes sense, because, you know, humans who have power, who want more power, when they see or are near the ring, it changes them. 
because that's what Sauron wants. Uh, The last thing Sauron wants is for the hobbits to be holding the rings, because they are really the only ones who are hardy enough to do so, even at great cost to themselves. As soon as a man gets the ring, they're going to use it, or think they're going to use it immediately um, and think that they're using it for themselves, but as soon as they try and use it uh, for themselves in terms of granting them power or whatever, it will just attract Sauron. The person will be destroyed and Sauron will get the ring and all will be for naught. The the heartbreaking part of this little side story is just... um, that, you know, it's there, it's Faramir and Faramir's men sort of torturing Gollum uh, that causes bad Gollum to take over from good Smeagol again. And it's not really the Hobbit's fault, but they're, of course, the ones that have to suffer the consequences. Here he's telling them about Boromir's death. I think there's a, a flashback scene of this movie involving Boromir leading the troops. Is it right here? That uh, that is one of the scenes I would love to have kept in the movie. Let's see what's going on here. Oh, here's the flashback to seeing the boat. I don't think we see this in um in the original. It, this is shot so great. David Wenham has such a great look. So here we come to see that Faramir did see the dead body of his brother, which we don't see in the original cut. It's a beautiful shot. Now he's still thinking about the past. Up oh, here comes. This is the flashback scene I so wish they had kept because we see Gondor strong. We saw uh, this is Asgiliath, which is the fortress leading to Mordor. We see it in, you know, it's still in ruins from many years ago, but they control it. Boromir is the war leader. People have optimism, people have strength, bravery. So, you know. What's great about scenes like this, other than it just looks amazing, and it's great to see Sean Bean again give this great hero speech, is that both Rohan and Gondor have been fighting the orcs even before the hobbits set out on their quest. They hadn't put together that the full-on invasion was coming, but they have been fighting it. Now, Faramir is trying to play a slightly younger version of himself here, who really looks up to his older brother, and they love each other. Um, Faramir is, you know, probably some sort of captain still, but Boromir's leading the overall uh, fight. Not quite a war yet. Or they don't see it as a war. That's interesting what they're drinking there. It looks like pure phobe. Uh, and we see that the father already prefers Boromir, and Boromir doesn't even like all the attention and love heaped on him by his father, both because, you know, we've what we see here is Boromir actually has more humility and self-awareness than we thought was the case in the first movie because the ring really corrupts him in the first movie, just being near it. So here he blames Faramir for the city almost falling and that Boromir had to control it again. 
This really probably only takes place a few months ago. Yeah, you know, Denethor just hates hates the sun for some reason. I'm not sure why. Maybe he sees something of himself and his son, and he's so full of self-hatred. Boromir's really standing up for Faramir. There's so much great character stuff here. You see why uh, both Faramir and his father love Boromir, but for such different reasons. And Boromir identifies much more with his brother than his father, even though his father loves him so much. And this is where the One Ring comes up. Yep. So, oh yeah, okay, so this is just months ago. This is shortly before Denethor sent Boromir as his proxy to the council in Rivendell, where they form the Fellowship for the first time in the first movie. And his father's putting pressure on him to bring the ring to Gondor. He's, Denethor knows or says that you know, it will corrupt the hearts of men, but Boromir can handle it. You know, humans just don't realize the limits of their power, but even more so, don't realize the um, the power of the ring, the evil power, and what it will do to humans. They know Sauron's coming. They they can tell that you know there's more battles, there's more attacks, there's more raids, and his father's begging him to bring back the ring. Yeah, so Boromir doesn't want to go just because he doesn't want to leave his people. But I, I, he's a little scared of the ring. And when you see this, it completely reframes your point of reference about Boromir in, in Fellowship in the first movie. He just... He just it's a little over the top how much he hates Faramir. But again, as I talk about in Return of the King commentary, in the books, Denethor at this point has already been using the Palantir, the black orbs that are unaccounted for, and is being corrupted by it, because Sauron has some of them at least, and this is the last time the brothers see each other. And so Denethor has already been losing his mind, even at this point, because of the Palantir. None of that makes it into the movies, even the extended cuts. But a great scene nonetheless. And really, while it you know, while it sort of informs a rewatching of the first movie in terms of Boromir's character and the fact that he is actually, you know, less arrogant and corrupt than he seemed to be, it also shows how far um Faramir's come and makes the scenes between him and his father in the final movie even more heartbreaking. With more context. What a shot. Look at that moon, waterfall. I mean, again, throughout the movies, they managed to combine sets with both landscape shots and CGI and use those three things absolutely seamlessly together. You totally, I, I should say, I totally buy Middle Earth in all, all the movies. I'm never really taken out of it for a second. Uh, the Forbidden Pool thing, there's more to this in the book. Um... It's definitely a plot device because, you know, it forces Frodo to kind of turn on, um, to turn against Gollum or trick him, even though he's saving Gollum's life. But as we'll see in a minute, the way they, they shoot uh, Frodo and the way um, Elijah Wood plays it, 
that from Gom's perspective, you know, Frodo is really manipulating him more than is actually the case, but starts Gollum's descent, or actually starts Smeagol's descent back into being Gollum, bad Gollum. So this also forces, you know, Frodo to reveal more information to Faramir. And what I love about Faramir is even though you can tell uh, almost immediately when we first meet him a little while ago that he's more steady and probably trustworthy than Boromir, at least more grounded, he too is affected by the ring. He doesn't even know it's the ring yet, but he has a suspicion. And so they do play Faramir as a, as a somewhat dark, ambiguous character. Which only enhances, you know, the the brilliance of the moment when Faramir does what his brother couldn't, which was let the ring go, and have a a deeper and more nuanced understanding of what's really going on in in the war that's coming right here. So yeah, nice Smeagol, good Smeagol. I don't know if Frodo knows exactly what they're gonna do to him. I I don't think he he knew that they were gonna torture him. So this is a, this is a, you know, uh, Smeagol is smart enough, if he wanted to be, to put together that Frodo was forced into the situation. Uh, by the way, they cut out a lot of this in the movie. Uh, um, the kicking and the torture they don't have in the movie. Um, I get why they didn't do it, but this really sells Smeagol turning back into Gollum. They beat the shit out of him. Sam beats him up a lot, but he, Sam's a hobbit. These are full-size men uh, warriors. So this is, yeah, so now we're back to the the, the uh, theatrical cut. They should have kept the torture in there. It's, it's PG-13 material. There's no bleeding. They don't break any bones. It's brutal, but it sells. Here it comes. It sells this. It sells the inner, uh, the inner dialogue that's not a dialogue. It's funny, people refer to that as inner monologue, but that makes no sense. Um, it, it implies that you're talking to yourself, but really in our brains, we do have different voices. I'm not talking about hearing things, like, you know, if you have issues, but we do have different voices that are our own voice, but they're saying different things. And so I always think the notion of the inner dialogue is a more accurate description of what's going on. See, Gollum is going to give away the, the information, but he cannot help it. Because he's so mad at the hobbits now again, or, or at least Gollum's taken over. I love that screen. That's awesome. It's comical, cartoonish, and scary and heartbreaking at the same time. This is great, you know? I mean, Sam's constantly doing stuff like this. Sam knows that Frodo's continued existence in the quest is more important than his although he's way undervaluing himself and way overestimating you know Frodo's ability to do this alone Frodo says he can't use the ring it's going to overtake him if he uses it again and uh, I don't believe he uses it until the very final scene in Mount Doom in Return of the King when he says no the ring is mine Yep. This is an important moment. And, and what's even more tragic is, while well, he's very consciously aware that the ring's taking him, by the time we get to the beginning of Return of the King, 
Hill have been wearing it so long and are so into Mordor, so much into Mordor that he can't even recognize what he's already acknowledged. See, that looks so real. You know, they didn't have to green screen that, but the way they film it, the way they're filming it, they really looks like they're hobbits. I wonder what the if it was a sloping floor or something like that to make the the size difference happen. You know, you shoot humans from below, you shoot hobbits from above. That already adds a foot or two right there. The ring of power within my grasp, and this is the exact reaction, basically, that Boromir had, or, or thought that Boromir had, and the thought that the father had, and we see that they're all. The weak isn't the word, because the ring is evil, but they are not strong enough to understand what the hell is going on. The idea of the sword touching the chain, but not the ring, but right on the border there, you know, it's like he's he wants the ring, but he's afraid to even touch it. But what's great is Faramir recognizes that it it could be a problem for him to just physically take it. So while he kidnaps the hobbits for a while and it says they're going to bring him to Minas Tirith, to his dad, and hope to show his quality, as he says, and maybe his dad will love him then. But he keeps it on Frodo. So they move the whole packets together, Frodo and Sam and Frodo wearing the ring. So Faramir has the sense that it could overtake him. But he's obsessed with Gondor winning, like his brother was, but he's also obsessed with his father you know, loving him, accepting him, showing any kind of respect or affection for him. <laughs> and the ring will go to Gondor. It's just you will take us to the Black Gate. This is Sam's first attempt to to talk Faramir down from this, you know, terrible choice. And then Sam will make an even more impassioned one towards the end, which which will sway. Faramir, oh, this looks awesome. God, it just looks so real. The army's marching. And it's the perfect distance where they wouldn't see uh, uh, Aragorn, but Aragorn would see them. And it, it, and this actually enhances the near-death plot, because if he had uh, fallen where he fell and be behind a day or two, the people that are already in Helm's Deep... So he was, he, you know, he was behind the group enough to, to see the army marching and how close it was. Uh, this 360 shot that lands on Helm's Deep is so amazing. I try every time and follow sort of the, the uh, circumference, uh, the, uh, the uh, circumference of the shot and when it's going to appear in the background. And I, it always it just hits me. I'm not ready for it. See, this is great. This is great Gimli humor right here. Yeah, Aragorn's happy to see it, but he doesn't have time. I love he's He's so out of it. He doesn't even see Legolas there. I love it. You look terrible. Uh, these two have a bond that even Gimli can't have because, you know, Aragorn's basically an elf. Aragorn's a human in name only. Grew up among the elves. He has similar powers to the elves. He loves an elf. He's raised by elves. 
He speaks Elvish, prefers to speak Elvish. Of course, you know, Miranda Otto, as A1 doesn't pick up on the exchange of the jewelry there. You know, I think when Aragorn sort of hinted at Arwen to her, he figured that would be enough. That's a hero shot. Unbelievable. Pushing the doors open. Far shot, close shot. And then immediately they're in discussions. Oh, it's 10,000. 10,000 Urukai, that's a lot. So how many are in the final battle? I gotta look this up. I can't, though, I already did the final commentary. I said 20,000, maybe it's more. Maybe it's like 100,000. As weird as the numbers could be with Tolkien sometimes, it always seemed like the right amount. If it were 100,000, you're like, okay, there's no way these can stop 100,000. If it was like 1,500, then with the fortress, it seems that they would be able to you know, hold hold off the, you know, 1,500 orcs. So 5,000 would have worked for me. 10,000 raises the stakes. And uh, it also creates an even more desperate situation for when their uh, unknown saviors arrive shortly before battle. Yeah, see, Gimli's always the one pointing out how bad the odds are. But... It's not because he's scared. It's just he doesn't. He sees Aragorn as you know the the epitome of natural, uh, natural, amazing leader. But he sees people like Theoden acting all tough and brash and hubristic, if that's a word. And Gimli's just like, get your head out of your ass. Like this isn't gonna be a cakewalk. I mean, Theoden has seen lots of battle in his many years, but he hasn't fought recently, and he doesn't have access to the knowledge that that Aragorn and you know, and he and Legolas have about what's really going on. I mean, if you look at the map, especially Aragorn coming from Bray, right, which is right near the Shire, which is like in the northwest. And they go way north to the mountains, and then they go, you know, to avoid Isengard, they can't go over the mountains, and then they go below the mountains through um, the mines of Moria, which they find out all the dwarves who live there are dead, and they barely get out of there, and Gandalf's killed, you know, for a while um, while they're there, and then they go south into Rohan. Uh, oh, before that, they, they when Frodo and Sam leave at the end of the first movie, they're almost at the Emin Muir, which is sort of the beginning of the descent to Mordor. Then they head south to Rohan. They've geographically been all over the place. They've dealt with Saruman. They have dealt with agents of Sauron. They've dealt with the Balrog. they dealt with goblins. They've dealt with, you know, freaking trolls and... Yeah. They they know and have experienced things that even in Theoden's long years he has not. Although um, I believe both Legolas, well, Aragorn's definitely older than Theoden. I think he said he's eighty six. Legolas is probably older. They live hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years, if not more. Elves are immortal. They can be killed. I'm not exactly sure what happens to their souls when they're killed, but you know, assuming no death in battle or disease or whatever, uh, technically immortal. 
And uh, I, I believe dwarves can live at least into their mid-100s, if not... I initially thought they could live to like 300, but I think maybe they're like hobbits. They can live to like 130, 140, 150. So it's possible that Gimli isn't that much younger um, than Theoden, even though like Theoden looks like the oldest of all of them, which is one of the many awesome things about Middle Earth and elves and dwarves and, you know, various kinds of humans. And this is where the fantasy genre comes from. This is where the role-playing game genre comes from and it's all great but it all comes from here the way they make the other ants look is just fantastic and this is why i don't have that much of a problem my only issue is the size really of the ants in the way that when they do the close-ups and then far shots of the hobbits you know sitting on tree beer doesn't look amazing but the creativity of the design of the ants is fantastic and well, I have... Okay, I'll go back to the ads. This is Aragorn taking charge already, knowing that he has to, even though he's half dead, as Legolas points out. Oh, this is great. Because it, it's honorable to go with the Wibbid. He's condescending to her again. This is a callback, or a call forward, to their little nighttime discussion in... In the return of the king. Let me stand at your side. He said it is not my power to command it. Yeah, this she's really laying it out. She doesn't want to be parted from him. He is the because they love you. I forgot that she was so direct. How does he respond to this? Now he knows. I can't remember if that's an extended version of the original scene. I hope that was in the theatrical. That's great. Because she realizes she's gone too far, but she's so full of honesty and passion and love. Oh, I love Eowyn. My, my sister by proxy, as I mentioned in the intro. My ideal world, that would be my sister. And Well, my sister is, is easily as beautiful and amazing as, as Eowyn is already, but I would be Eober, which is more of a stretch. And uh, we would go around killing orcs and then, you know, getting drunk on mead afterwards and seeing hobbits dance. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Sarah, if you're out there, I love you. Don't know if you've made it through this commentary. But, you know, Eowyn and Aomer would be amazing even if they had no relation. But, um, they're the only brother sister combo that I think we see in the movie. Everyone else, it's through fellowship. Bonds of fellowship or friendship or, you know, royalty. And, you know, here's Aragorn doing what Gimli did. I mean, this is, this, we're, we can't win this. Yeah, the three of them are all on board. They know this is, this is, even if these people were in good shape and motivated, they're so scared. And what's great about the Battle of Gondor, all right, let me say this. What's great about the Battle of Helm's Deep. Oh, I'm not getting the Elvish subtitles here for some, for some reason. Hard to get good subtitles. That's an interesting touch there. People already can tell that the, the two of their leaders are going at each other, but then Aragorn switches to English. 
And they, of course, and he says, I will die as one of them. That's not going to help the morale of the troops. But anyways, Helm's Deep, you really see the development of the whole thing because Aragorn is there from the beginning and he has to learn how to inspire everybody including the king who is just so despondent he knows he is continuing to screw up and this was another bad decision right so gambling is now the right hand man the the guy at the beginning who was doing the weapons check Hama um, when he let Gandalf keep the staff he was killed by a warg and we're going to see his son and they don't really explain it it's one of those subtle things we see that his little boy is going to fight in this battle his dad is dead and he's, he's, not a, he's not a man so this guy takes over as number two um, well Aomer is number two once Aomer comes back in the picture this guy's number three from a battle standpoint this looks great I, it, it, what's great about the, the, the orcs um, and the, so you have the Orokai, who are these super orcs that Saruman bred in his pets, who can march during daylight, who are bigger and stronger and more disciplined. The way they move is, you know, very much like terrain soldiers, marching, holding their spears. But when you see, you know, the normal uh, Mordor orcs in the in the final movie, they're they're far less disciplined, but their sheer numbers make up for what they lack in uh, professionalism. Yeah, this is yeah, this is tough. You know, I mean, to see fourteen-year-old, thirteen, fourteen-year-old boys who are gonna go to their death get away with it in the PG thirteen because of how they how they how they execute it, and uh, you know, it teaches the horrors of war. And this is what I'm always talking about. You know, it's like people say, well, there's all this violence, but we don't want this movie to be rated R, and so we'll just take out the blood, but it just disconnects the violence from reality, because you know, when you shoot people, there's blood. They, they don't just fall over, and they're suffering and dying, and so even though there's not a ton of human blood in Lord of the Rings, there's plenty of orc blood, they sell how, you know, how terrible the reality of war is, and you know, again, if I'm watching this with my I don't have kids, but it, I often think about what it would be like to watch these movies with younger kids. So if I had a 10 or 11-year-old daughter or son, I thought they were mature enough to handle this, I would want them to see that, to see the fear on those kids' faces, that it's not some video game, you know, it's not just some glorious um, you know, thing to, to, to jump into battle and and there's no consequences, and, you know, this is this is what war is. And this is where Aragorn... Um, okay, so that's Hama's son, Hama the former right-hand man who got eaten by the warg in the previous battle. This kid is pretty interesting looking. You can just buy that he could maybe take out a couple bad guys. But this, what Aragorn does here sums up all of his feelings about what's going on. And, you know, he's been kind of thinking that it's been hopeless, but hearing this poor little kid say it, it's just his natural instinct as a leader, as I'm always talking about natural leaders. They inspire people without even trying. And, and the, the ferocity with which he swings that terrible sword, which he says is a good sword, shows both resolve and anger. And Aragorn has mostly been doing what he's been doing because of the prophecy and just, you know, knowing that he has to take a leadership role. 
But it, this battle is when it becomes personal for him. And this is where the link of Eowyn is again. You know, him and Theoden, for now, don't see eye to eye, eventually become brothers in arms. This is great. This is how Legolas apologizes. And Aragorn, you know. He's not just being a nice guy when he tells Legolas that there's no need to, to apologize. Because he was thinking the same thing. And then this is great. Oh, man. <laughs> not sure what happened to his old armor. A little tight across the chest. <laughs> you know, it, not commenting that it's like three feet long for him in the arms and legs. Okay, so this is great because after a number of scenes of building up hopelessness, they had this little moment of the trio coming together, and then bam! That is a horn we haven't heard before. Oh, boy. And I love how... There's a lot to talk about with these elves because a lot of fans, including my buddy Adam Tuck, who you'll hear from the Fellowship, did not like this. I love this edition. In fact, I, it was so convincing that I forgot that it wasn't in the original, and that's the ultimate test for me. It, I, I love that the if you before they start commenting that they're elves and you see them closer for that first little bit, they just look like these you know Roman legionnaires, and you're not sure that they're elves. And oh god, he looks so good. He's not Celeborn, who is the king, uh, who's Galadriel's uh, husband. And this is this is the consequence of Kate Blanchett uh, as Galadriel, kind of guilting Elrond into helping out. It's only three hundred soldiers, but three hundred elven soldiers is worth like ten times that especially in this situation. And they bring hope. That's the important thing. And the personal connection here is what it's all about. Aragorn is the reason they're here in a lot of ways. You know, Elrond is constantly doing stuff for Aragorn because of Arwen's love for him. And I like how they just say it. We're proud to fight. Let's get ready. Boom, here we go. War. I think it's that exchange that Theoden witnesses where he realizes that Aragorn is actually a more effective leader than him because he can command men, he can command elves, he has got a dwarf buddy, he's got a, you know, he's got Gandalf. Um, Aragorn just has a, has a range of leadership that has part to do with personality and just part to do with his upbringing and his, uh, you know, not notion of, of the prophecy of his uh, rise to, to power. <laughs> you know, you keep breaking, breaking up the uh, the tenseness with some Gimli humor. This this whole uh, Helm's Deep stuff, and I don't mean just starting now. I mean starting when they first got here. Just balances, you know, really dark, gritty, um, bloody fighting, but the the uh, the competition between Legolas and Gimli, you know, just keeps it just light enough that it feels like an adventure as well and not just a war. That you have some swashbuckling, you know, flying on ropes and jumping on stuff and, you know, as well as just the straight up medieval hand-to-hand -hand combat. And in the uh, final major battle in Return of the King, the Battle of Pelennor Fields to protect or save Minas Tirith... Just the sheer number of orcs is what's so horrifying. But they don't do the uh, the sort of atmospheric buildup like this. Um, like in Return of the King, you don't get to see the civilians that much. 
can't really connect with them, but they do a better job in this movie of at least selling the horror of all the women and children who are stuck down there, including Eowyn, who is horrified for the same reasons, but also horrified that she's not out there fighting because there's probably, outside of the elves, there's probably, you know, a dozen people at most who could fight better than her, which we will see in the third movie and is glorious. So this is great. They're, the notion is that they're just outside of, or they think they're just outside of um, arrow range. And they're just going to kind of build the tension and scare the, the humans. Starting in a minute here. Uh, yeah. The, the filming of this, I think, took three months. I could be wrong. It might be two, a month and a half to two months. I believe it was three months. And they was always in the dark, and it was always with fake rain. And cannot imagine how much water was wasted on this. That's another story. Everyone's left-handed. I, I watch so many, you know, like, fantasy sci-fi action movies. So many major actors... Oh, here it comes. So many major actors are lefties when it comes to either swords or guns. With Jeremy Renner and Hawkeye, they tried to make him a righty, but he is a lefty and shoots his bow and arrow lefty. Scarlett Johansson shoots with her left. Vigo tries to fight with both hands, but it's pretty clear that Aragorn is a lefty. Unless I miss something. Theoden is definitely a lefty, and I talk about that in the final movie, how he had to pretend he was a righty to do the sword fist bump with everyone. It's interesting that the orcs would be enraged by the death of one other orc. I'm not sure how that works exactly. So, I think I mentioned how this is my favorite battle in the series. Even though there's amazing ones in the third movie, this just feels the most real. There's the rhythm of the weight and then the run towards the wall. You got the elven archers. And they've got archers where you don't even think they have archers, which is great. So I'm not getting the Elvish subtitles here for some reason, but Legolas is saying, you know, hit him in the neck. Which is interesting that, you know, Legolas would have to be advising Elrond's elves. It's because Elrond's elves haven't been fighting the Orokai, who are a relatively new form of orc. Oh, great. Yeah. Here, this is awesome. You totally don't see this coming, that they have all the extra elves because not enough room. But because <laughs> elves are such amazing archers and have a sixth sense, they kind of know where to fire it, even though they are shooting in a rainbow and can't see. This looks so real. There is so... Even the battle for Minas Tirith, the battle of Pelennor Fields is amazing, but there are a few parts where you go, eh, this looks 100% real the whole time through. Um, I talk about the Matrix podcast, Okay, first of all, I mentioned, I talk about in the Return of the King uh, commentary about the amazing use of battering rams. Um, these are war ladders or siege ladders. And this just looks better than coming over the side this way. In the third movie, they got these giant siege towers, which I think I called war towers. I like that Aragorn is immediately on the ground. That's Haldir, I believe, is the name of that elf. And he is a character in the original, uh, in the books, but I don't believe, I mean, I, they definitely, the elves do not show up here. I think you had to reestablish the connection between men and elves. 
and how horrifying it is for an elf to die, giving up their immortality. Um, here comes the counting. Yeah, it's not really fair for Legolas because he's been, um, you know, firing arrows before anyone came over the side. The arrow shooting, so pretty much any arrows that you see um, are CGI. So the number of actual arrows that Orlando Bloom fires, it's probably like 1% are actual arrows. It's all CGI, and it just works brilliantly, and Orlando Bloom just got it. I know Orlando Bloom isn't the best actor or the most versatile, and he's kind of fallen off the face of the earth. I think he's underrated. I love him in Kingdom of Heaven. Um, Ridley Scott movie about the Crusades not a lot of people have seen and I actually like him in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies I don't love those movies but he, Keira Knightley and Johnny Depp those three do keep me entertained so hope we'll see some more Orlando Bloom he was cool in the Hobbit movies actually the, el the elf stuff in the Hobbit movies was by far the coolest that and seeing you know Kate Blanchett just kick absolute ass which you don't see coming so you know for better or worse Pippin and Merry are essentially stuck with the Ents the whole time. <laughs> and they takes like a, you know five hours of talking to come to the. I like Pippin. This <laughs> Pippin thinks that's good news. And this is this is where Merry becomes really the toughest of the Hobbits. I mean, Sam is tough just because he's stubborn and loyal. Merry really, you know. He really comes off like a, a knight, and he becomes a knight, as does Pippin, for different reasons. Yeah, it's, it's true. If you're that old, then why would you try and talk about something for five minutes? The language would evolve based on your age. Um, one wonders if the elves have a similar type of secret language where they can talk about one issue for, you know, six days straight. Um, but that sort of common elvish is more like English or man, man, human tongue, man tongue, whatever the hell they call it. I see, this is great. You know, you got the shield wall. This is so medieval. The white hand of Saruman. You know, the fact that the elves wouldn't notice that that was happening. I guess they sell it, though, spatially. It's kind of hard to see, and they're moving slowly. Yep, here's the hubris of Theoden. And so from here forward is when Aragorn just takes over out of sheer necessity. I love the bombs. It, it was so cool in the book, however they talked about it. But it makes total sense that Saruman would have gunpowder or something similar and know how to enhance it to become, you know, C4, essentially. I love the Olympic Torch guy. I loved it when I saw it. I still love it. Not just because it's classic. He's like a wrestler slash Olympic Torch runner. But watch, he runs faster after he gets hit the second time and then just jumps. The camera speeds up. Boom. Suicide bomber. There you have it, people. So this movie came out basically one year after 9-11. It was called The Two Towers. There was controversy. That Oh my god, that explosion's amazing. That's the best fantasy explosion ever, both because of how it looks, because of what it results in, and because it's completely believable within the fantasy universe. It doesn't feel like you know it was a, a suicide bomber in the modern sense. That's what an old school suicide bomber would be like. 
And, you know, this is where Theoden realized he is majorly miscalculated, although Aragorn's somewhat at fault for not killing Wormtongue, who gave that bit of information to Saruman, but whatever. Not much of a gate. Certainly not as big as the one in Minas Tirith, which required... Oh, there's Peter Jackson. Um, uh, Minas Tirith. For that gate to come down, they have this, you know, 300-foot-long flaming dragon statue named Grom, which is amazing. Like I said... Gimli acts scared sometimes when they're in like sort of, you know, with weird spirits or ghosts around, but comes to battle, he's so reckless. And actually being a dwarf, as we see here, is, can be very beneficial. It's like in soccer, being tall actually can hurt you. Better to be low to the ground, harder to hit. You know, orcs are used to hitting men who are their size, having to go down towards a, a, a dwarf. And because of the way that axes operate in terms of swinging up, Oh, there's a decapitation. I think Aragorn decapitates in every movie. Yep, he does. Yep. He, yep, he, de he decapitates. Uh, this is a surfboard thing. Hardcore fans did not like this. Main fans loved it. Sorry, hardcore fans. I'm a huge nerd, as you can tell. I love the surfboard. You gotta do it. And it's not a surfboard. It's not water. He's using a shield to get down the stairs as fast as he fucking can. It's brilliant. That whole, I'm, I'm like, I'm already sad that that part of the battle's over because I, I missed so much and I've seen it so many times. It's so freaking realistic. And so, uh, oh, uh, to go back a bit, um, so I was saying that it took like three months to shoot all that. So it was always at night, which meant they had to sleep during the day for like three months. They had to be vampires and completely flip their, you know, they would, they would arrive around, you know, six or seven or something, get makeup applied, start shooting. You know, shoot until 3, 4 in the morning, and then go to sleep. It actually sounds like uh, my sleeping schedule for uh, age like 12 to 27, but luckily I'm adjusted to a slightly more normal sleeping schedule, so I would have been great there. They should have had me at Helm's Deep. But you know, the orcs who are fighting, they have to get like 6 hours of makeup, so they're working like 20-hour days pretty much. Um... And there's very few shots of people just hacking at nothing. They're always hacking at orcs, which means the orcs are always there. The guys in the orc costumes. You know, poor John Reese davis plays Gimli. Amount of makeup he has to put on as well. Aragorn could just show up like an hour in advance. Although, I think they're all wearing wigs. I mean, the hobbits are clearly all wearing wigs. A lot of the women are wearing wigs. Not really sure. So, Pippin still has a long way to go in terms of maturity, but this is the first big moment. I mean, it wasn't even enough to be, you know, dragged around by some orcs. Mary has to tell him that the Shire will burn. Legolas fighting hand-to-hand, -hand, always amazing. Yeah, they gotta fall back. It's not as high as um, Minas Tirith, which has seven levels. It's not as big, but they do have the outer defenses, which they've basically just lost, and, and then the inner keep. Um, but they have to defend the inner keep, or that's it. 
you know how they're going to die. But they do it so well, and they sell the sadness of, you know, these elves should be going across the sea right now to the undying lands where they're meant to be, but, you know, they give it up. I think there is some notion of reincarnation with elves. Um, I don't know much more about that. And I love how he looks at, and this is great. I mean, he gets slashed in the back of the head. His head is probably split wide open. They don't show it, but you still feel the force of the blow. And what does he say? He sees piles of dead elves. I always look to see if there's orcs among them. It looks mostly he's just seeing the elves, which once again shows us that they have no regard for orcs, and orcs have given them no uh, reason to have regard for them. And Aragorn, as always, a moment of solemnity and sadness immediately knows what has to be done. See, this is the adventure stuff in this battle they just don't have in the final battles in the third movie. Oh, they, oh, I love that. They just skewer the guy with the... See, and they're so prepared. They got the arrows ready. I mean, they're, they're just taking down so many soldiers. They're not just breaching it. You know, it's, it's interesting in movies, especially in movies involving, you know, kings and stuff. On the one hand, you don't want them running at the front of the line, although Aragorn always does, uh, but for the most part, you don't want the king at the front of the line. But at some point, he needs to fight if it comes down to it, and so I think they sold that this was the perfect point where he was being a strategic leader before, and now they just need as many swords and spears as possible. I lo it's great that he gets injured quickly, because he's an old man, and... You know, I'm sure his soldiers are, are motivated just by his attempt to fight at his, his old age, or at least condition. I mean, it, you know, there's a scenario that Theoden could be in his 40s based on the age of his son and niece and nephew, but, you know, in his position, you ace quickly. Oh, this is the trapdoor scene, another adventure scene, which I love. There was a lot of adventure stuff in Fellowship. The third movie, as I will talk about, is a war movie, and... All the best trilogies have very different feels for each of the three movies, but there's some similarities. And this has some of the swashbuckling, you know, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean type uh, stuff, which I love. But it makes sense in the third that they just have to go to war. Toss, and this is the, uh, so the first movie, he says, never toss the dwarf. You know, the dwarf, toss, uh, dwarf tossing thing it might rub people the wrong way, but... Because Gimli is... I haven't really talked about that. I, I, I'm curious as to what the sort of little people community think about Lord of the Rings and about Gimli. Because no one talks about it, but if you're into fantasy or role-playing games or anything, dwarves are, like, the best fighters. Like, they are often better fighters than the humans. They have weaknesses that humans don't have, and they can't cast magic and so forth, but... You give a you give a dwarf in a role playing game a battle axe and a big suit of armor and you can just go to town and so you know I don't want to speak for people as as a Jewish person there aren't a lot of like strong militant Jews um, in the movies which is surprising because Israel has a ridiculously powerful army but no one wants to talk about that anyways point being when you see a movie like Inglorious Bastards or even um, Munich, which talks about you know the Israeli Secret Service getting revenge on the Palestinians in the seventies who murdered all the uh, um, the uh, Israeli um, uh, athletes at the Olympics in Munich. 
it's empowering, you know? And so, I don't want to speak for little people here. I'm just curious what their response would be. And if sort of the very, very, very empowering, you know, image of Gimli is, is true, it's the way I see it, for some of his stature, as well as the hobbits. Um, this is, right, this is, this is a conceit, right? Here, they should be dead. And uh, it's great, the orcs sort of suddenly lose the ability to run for, like, five, six, seven seconds. Oh. Just missed him. So yeah, the dwarf t- t- uh, the dwarf tossing thing gets laughs. I just hope it's not getting laughs for the wrong reason. You can't you can't look at it as a comment about all little people. It's just Gimli's character and his his pride in himself. And you know these three, the big three here, Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn. Oh, it's so brutal. Just the fighting in this movie is just the best. From from a visceral standpoint, it's so brutal. It's so real. Like you know, the, okay. So on the left there, all the the orcs running up are CGI, but they're far enough away, and in the dark, it looks totally real. Plus, you know, when a movie gets you, and, and you know, people had already been well gotten by the end of the first movie, so this wasn't a tough sell, even if this is people's you know least favorite of the three for whatever reason. Once a movie gets you, if the 10% of CGI that might look, you know, not not amazing, you don't even notice it's there because you're just so caught up in the story and the characters and everything. So, right, so Pippin has internalized that the Shire's in danger even if they run away. Um... And he comes up with the plan to go past Isengard. Seems like something Mary would come up with, being the smarter one. But Pippin is an outside-the-box thinker, for better or worse. And he's also very mischievous. And so, when it comes to hatching a mischievous plan, and it's great if it's, you know, the plan is for a good purpose, he's the one to turn to. His little schemes... And Mary had Mary doesn't pick up on it. That's a little surprising. Or at least not little Shire links. Yeah, it looks good. I mean, the whole thing looks good. I just would have made the Hobbits way smaller in comparison. That's it. And I would have made Treebeard, you know, much bigger in comparison to the trees. Although it would make sense that, you know, if he was too tall, he'd be constantly ducking under all the branches. So this is Pippin's first moment of uh, major personal as well as professional achievement if you will coming up with his plan you know but he screws up again at the beginning of the third movie and has to redeem himself again um, and does so you know they're they're constantly trying to plant seeds about this how terrible this idea is with Faramir, but... And he hesitates. It's not like Boromir, who, when he gets close to the ring, immediately becomes uncomfortable and, you know, fidgety. Faramir is... If it weren't for his relationship with his dad and how much he wants to please his father, I'm not sure what his decision-making process would have been vis-a-vis um, the hobbits in the ring. And this is the plan. 
And, and Mary's surprised, too. Pippin knows this is coming. Pippin's smiling. Not because he's not sad for the trees, but because he knows what this is going to mean. This is going to help his friends. So wizards are not, of course, wizards. They are called such in Z movies and the books. They're called Istari, I want to say, um, and are sort of higher spirits um, from across the sea who are specifically created to help mankind and the elves, essentially. They're angels, but because of how human Saruman and and uh, at Gandalf are you know you never you're never really thinking the angel thing. They just seem like wizards. In this uh, this this moment of realization, when the Ents are coming out for war through the battle itself, people in the theater were going crazy. My relatives who like this movie, whether they're older or much younger, love the Ents, love the Ent battle, and how can you not? It looks amazing. And they do it in bright daylight. I believe, I believe the sun is coming up, um, which, of course, as I always say, harder to do special effects in bright daylight. And this is, this is just chilling. Doom is used um, a lot by Tolkien. I might get back to that. So the last march of the Ents is the name of a chapter in the book. Peter Jackson and company tried to do this as much as possible. Riddles in the Dark and many others. All right, so here we get to Osgiliath, and there's incredible fighting here at the beginning of the third movie. In fact, the, the most kind of just, you know, brutal hand-to-hand combat um, in, in the third movie comes during the Osgiliath scene, which is pretty early on. So Faramir is basically here until they have to flee sort of a third of the way or so through Return of the King. This is right-hand man. He's much older, but Faramir is the son of the steward. So, you're, uh, yeah, you're just, you're in horror when you're in the theater watching this for the first time. Uh, and Elijah Wood saying, you know, it's calling to them. I can feel them. You're going, up. Oh, we know exactly what's happening. The wizards are indeed called Istari. Just translated in old Elvish as the wise ones. Yeah, I mean Faramir's committed. Oh, here we go. This is this is great. How can you not love Sean Astin in these movies? He just kills it. His casting was almost more important than um, Frodo and Elijah Wood is, you know spectacular to say the least in these movies but sam is the moral heart but also the protector who's both one-dimensional and two-dimensional and three-dimensional and four-dimensional this is great anything where elijah wood is like under a spell and he's looking all weird he just he just look at those eyes totally non-digitally enhanced as i've mentioned before 
That's right. So they say Nazgul, so you don't know if they're referring to the riders who are exits Nazgul or the fell beasts. Doesn't matter. At this point, they are one. Um, from now until the end of the series, th- this movie and the next one, we only see the Black Riders get off the Flying Beast once, and that is the Aeon scene, which is yeah, maybe the greatest uh, payoff scene in any movie ever. They look so real. You know, uh, as I mentioned, some things do look better between movies. As they get, as they have a year of extra time to do effects and tech, new technologies, but the fell beasts, the, the flying Nazgul, look just as good in this one as the third, and that is to say, horrifying and completely believable. And this is this is the you know this is the low point for Theoden since he's been you know reawakened, and he's given up hope. Aowen's trying to keep people you know sane. Which is a noble goal, by the way. It's just unfortunate that she has to do what she's doing because she's a woman, but she will get her many moments in the sun. You kind of assume there had to be a passage into the mountains, that it wasn't just... But I don't understand why they didn't send the women and children earlier. Yeah, Theoden's going crazy here. Because now, even if they go to the mountains, there's so many orcs, the orcs can chase them, probably, if they had had them go earlier. I think, you know, again, Theoden was just so overconfident in this victory. And this is it. This is the bond. Even though they disagree at the beginning of Return of the King about some stuff, th- he realized that Aragorn's the true leader, and he says so to Eowyn in the beginning of the next movie. Yep, Gimli points it out. Everything's lining up. They managed to hold off till sunrise. I like that they have Gandalf's voice uh, flashback, but no image. Much classier. I think Theoden thinks he's going to die. He wants to. This is the whole Viking thing. The glory of death in battle. Victory or defeat. Be damned. And yeah. Dwarves are totally on, on board with the Viking uh, approach to warfare, I think. Now he accepts. He says, let us draw our swords together, but he's basically saying, I accept that we're equals, at least for now. See, fell deeds, right? Fell meaning evil, so the fell beasts, fallen, etc., the fall. And you're going, why is Gimli blowing the horn? Shouldn't he be fighting? But then you're like, uh, nope, you can't ride horses, so. You know, and this is totally impossible to believe. As powerful as horses are running at full speed when they're armored and they have armored, you know, warriors on them. I love that. Uh, Aragorn never wears a helmet. So, so when they, if you see the orcs move out of the way, they're real. If you see them get knocked over... Like oh, these are so. This is totally CGI right here. This is 100% CGI, and I don't know what they think they're doing. Uh, you know, I wonder if in the time between Aragorn saying "ride out with me" and then being on the horses, he explains that Aomer's coming. But you know, I'm always obsessed with the transfer of information and knowledge in movies. <laughs> I'll try and lay off. Oh, the shadow facts image. 
leaping up on its hind legs. Great. Oh, man. To get the horses to do that perfectly that's for the framing. Uh, they, you know, they keep pulling away, and so you see that's way more than you think. You're like, okay, that doesn't look like many. And this is one of the great images ever. And here we see another subtle use of Gandalf's magic. Where he's not creating something. He's just focusing, manipulating, and enhancing something. He had a very specific plan why he wanted to come from the east. That's where the sun rises. It already looks like they're going to kick some ass. And then, boom. You just barely see Gandalf put up his... There it is. You have to assume that Gandalf is making this crazier than it would have been. And then this is, of course, the preview of what's going to happen in the battle for Gondor in The Return of the King, where these guys have to save the lazy Gondorians' asses by doing something similar. Horses running downhill, wearing armor, with spearmen, that, you know, infantry, you're not going to last long. Okay, so this is it. The, the just just the fury with which these eds, these giant trees, are, are fighting. The fact that they have fighting skills is interesting. I'm not sure we see an ent die in this. That, that guy looks like he's going to die. And then another guy gets on fire and has to put his head out. Um, it would be kind of heartbreaking to see an ent die, especially knowing that there's so few left of them. And also that, you know... <laughs> How the hell are these little orklings? Because there's no uruk here, right? They're all tums deep. There's some great cleansing. Oh, there he is. He's on fire. So is, is this the guy that ends up going on? Seems like he would burn before they break the, uh, the dam. Bring down the dam. It is believable that someone with the Ents' power um, and longevity it would take a while for them to burn. You know, it wouldn't burn like uh, like firewood. Yeah, I mean, what's great is they they end everything that's bad in Isengard, which used to be a beacon of light back when Saruman was, you know an extremely powerful wizard for good before he turned. This is great how they have to brace themselves. Really sells the power of the water. It's like, okay, oh, there's a guy. Put out his head. Yeah, that's classic. So they cleanse Isengard, and when Saruman dies, even though it's different in the movies and books, I'm assuming this will once again become a, you know, important place. Or maybe they just leave it like a mausoleum, but they do cleanse it of all evil, which they don't do in Mordor. I mean, you know, they kill Sauron, but Mordor is still hell. Um, I didn't mention this in Return of the King, but I, I wonder what they do with the you know tens of thousands of orcs and, and goblins and, and trolls and ogres running around, how that works. Frodo just can't help himself. 
That looked very real, by the way, in terms of his size next to the soldiers not being a green screen. That looks super real. This is great. They do so many like kind of sneaky close-ups on the Nazgul in the second and third movies. Coming from out of frame or below frame or whatever. And this is when Faramir goes, oh my, oh, that's Hollywood, people. That shot there, I want that on a poster. Be scary to hang up in my bedroom, but um, other than the painting in Rivendell of, oh, here comes Sam. This looks really real. That looks great to be. Faramir gets it now. And Boromir, in this exact same situation, probably would not have gotten it. He would have just been totally overtaken by the ring. And this is another great shot. Classic. Make a poster out of that. So the main poster I want is the the paint, the actual painting in Rivendell in sort of the weapons room or, 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 where the shards of Aragorn's future sword are. There's a painting of Isildur, you know, basically facing off against Sauron while on the ground and a broken sword cuts it from his finger. Um, but in the painting, actually Isildur hasn't, hasn't done it yet. It looks like Sauron's going to win. That is beautiful, but... There's, you know, there's a couple dozen shots in this movie that you can just frame. It would be cool to make a book. I'm sure there's tons of photo books for these movies. It'd be cool to make a photo book of just those sort of the most classic shots. I like how Sam says it's all wrong. He doesn't say it's not fair. I hate when people say it's not fair. Life is not fair, people. No, no one deserves anything. You know, oh, I deserve this. No, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You earn it or you don't. But who you are has nothing to do with that thing. Sam says it's all wrong. Things are out of whack. Hobbits should never have to be in this situation, even though we learn that they're the only ones who could. But the reality is their lack of exposure to horror for all their lives compared to elves and men, because of how peaceful the Shire is and how removed actually helps them in the end because they have such a strong, untainted connection of love um, with the Shire, with their home. And of course, you know, every movie pretty much climaxes or ends with Sam's motivational speech. And it's great. It works. And they're doing a montage here with his speech. They do this a lot in the movies. It's the best way to do a montage. Don't just do music. And this is the culmination of what's been growing in Sam throughout the movie. And he's drawing from the stories that they heard growing up. They never lived those stories. Now, Bilbo told those stories. Um... We know that Frodo knows a lot of Bilbo's stories, and so Sam's appealing to his sense of, you know, human narrative and adventure. And he's saying, this isn't a fun adventure like we thought it would be. It's, hor it's horrific. And it and may kill us, but that there's something worth fighting for. And in that moment, he's talking about Frodo, but also Hobbits and the Shire, I like that, you know, briefly, good Gollum, uh, good Smeagol, you know, is touched by Sam's words, but they, and they don't even realize it's too late. Bad Gollum's already taken over, and, and, and the um, appearance, the outer sh sheen of 
Good Smeagol is a lie. And this is where Faramir becomes basically Aragorn Jr. He doesn't have Aragorn's lifespan or birthright or prophecy or superhuman skills. But he's a natural leader who's willing to give his life for the betterment of everyone else. I like that he's borderline crying because he knows <laughs> he knows by not bringing the ring back, A, his father could execute him for treason. This is also not in the movie, the tree swallowing up the orcs. Very fun, not necessary. But does explain the question I just asked before, which is what you do if you beat the orcs and they run away. They're still going to be all over the place. But, um, but yeah, but Sam's appealing to, to Frodo's sense of, of right and wrong. But they're able to do it in a non-one-dimensional way. That's the challenge with fantasy. You do have good versus evil, but you have to have enough ambiguity to make it human, relatable. Yeah, definitely didn't. This is a perfect example of, I think, Peter Jackson knowing ahead of time that that would be going into... Oh, She loves him. They're in love. Well, no, they're not. She's in love. Shout out to Monica Bellucci. Oh, this is an not in the original. Uh, and they can't lie to each other either, which is great. Pointy-eared Elvis Prince. They, they make racial jokes at each other. It's funny. And this is great. Again, this is the perfect addition. <laughs> he just killed the one that's already dead. He was twitching. <laughs> no, they should have kept it just for the humor. Oh, man. Yeah. His axe is buried in that guy's head as Legolas tries to catch up. It's funny, Legolas only kills like 20 from when he hits a bunch with the bow. So that means Gimli, based, from hand to hand combat, Gimli basically won 43 to 20, 22. The height thing back again. I think Pippin ends up taller in the book, but I do not know. I also believe Pippin becomes like a pretty big warrior. Yeah, I mean, there's so many deleted scenes from the end of the movie, but unlike the final one where you need all of the epilogue stuff, you don't need it in this movie. And so it's been, I don't know, five, six, seven minutes at least of, of cut stuff, all of which I like and I'm glad they restored, but did not need to be in the theatrical cut. That's my main conclusion. Other than the Aon Aragorn stuff, for the most part, didn't need the rest. Certainly not all the extra Pip and Mary stuff. See, there the long bottom leaf looks like tobacco. I mean, there's so many. They call it pipe weed, though, and they're constantly talking about smoking weed. So, you know, Peter Jackson's not an idiot. He's like a pretty liberal dude from New Zealand. I'm not saying he's a pothead, but I'm pretty sure Peter Jackson's probably open to the idea of smoking weed. Sorry, PJ, if I'm wrong about that. But that looks like tobacco. Yeah, but the thing is, okay, so for the last three cutscenes, the last three scenes, you take out the trees eating all the orcs, and then 
you keep the joke about the the death count between Legolas and Gimli, the axe in the head, and then you cut out all this stuff. But if you love the book, you just want as much footage as possible. I think there's also more with Faramir up here when it comes to what he says to Gollum. Yep, Faramir's on board. Yep, Sam gets it. He doesn't need approval from his dad. These guys are way more important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Sam thinks he's making fun of him, but he's not. He's doing the opposite. He's saying, dude, you're so much more than a gardener. <sighs> Yeah, I think they didn't... I don't think they had this part where they say, don't go to Kirith Ungol. I think in the movie, they make it seem like Faramir doesn't know or want to know where they're going. You don't need this foreboding because you get it in the third movie. Actually, you get it at the end of this movie and in the third movie by multiple parties. You don't need, don't need Faramir to do, to do this. But it's just more of him tor- torturing Gollum. You know, you can tell where... Okay, so this was in the movie, and this was very important. Yep, he, like Sam, does not trust Gollum. The only one who trusts Gollum is Frodo, because he's just... You talk, people talk about empathy, but Frodo is going through the early stages of what Gollum went through when he was still Smeagol and got addicted to the ring. And now this is what Gollum is. Right, and Sam's trying to explain here. And he's right. They were trying to save him. Sam's never nice to him, but he does know that he... he Sam can sense that this might flip him back into Gollum mode. Yep, and there's Gollum Gollum. Very decent of you. This doesn't last long. Oh, boy. This is a problem with doing the commentaries out of order. I have to next go to Fellowship of the Rank, but it's really fun, actually. You know, because you can reflect. You know, I call it, like, retroactive retrospective. If things that happen in the future have, change how things are in the past or how we perceive things in the past. And this is the battle for Middle-earth is about to begin, you know. This is, again, Empire Strikes Back. Lots of fighting, lots of losses. You win here, you lose there. But now we're ready for the big final battle in the final movie. But there's so much depth to this movie. Just between the, the Aragorn trio, the Aeon aspect, and, you know, these guys, and, and Gollum in particular. And Sam's still obsessed with the storybook side of things. And this is exactly how I would be and why I love fantasy, you know? If I ever got in a situation somewhat as horrible as this, I could draw from some of the great heroes. I know that sounds super cheesy, but... Game of Thrones, not going to give that to you folks. (laughs) 
This is such a cheesy line. Frodo wouldn't have gone far without Sam. Uh, you know, it. W <laughs> yeah, it, Sam thinks he's fucking with him the same way Faramir was. Sam can't take a compliment. But again, this is just the simple nature of their of, of the people, the Hobbit people, and of the individual Hobbits for each other. Samwise the Brave, indeed. He already is, and will continue to be. But Sam wasn't wrong that Frodo's going to be the one in most history books. Because on the surface, Frodo, you know, it, to the extent that we can measure pain and suffering, had more than Sam. But Sam had to make more actual decisions. Frodo was along for the ride, for especially as we move forward. So, you know, you could debate whether they sold that Gollum was tortured enough and stuff to flip this easily, but it works for me because A, it's like that in the book, and B, it shows that he was never more than a hair's breadth away from flipping back to bad Gollum. And that, you know, as much as we wanted to love good, nice, polite Smeagol, and hope that he would stay there. After hundreds and hundreds of years of being this guy, it's going to be very tough to be this guy. Especially when the bad Gollum is smarter than good Smeagol, can manipulate him on so many levels. You know, people say, oh, that's just split personality disorder. No, this is about the conflict within our own minds. This guy's way more demented and far gone than we are, hopefully. But... And this is why they needed to take out the Kirith Ungol reference from Faramir, because, you know, he's just now thinking of Shelob the spider, who lives up in Kirith Ungol. So it wouldn't make sense that he would say, yeah, I'm taking them to Kirith Ungol, haven't really thought why, and then, oh, okay, this, this is why. So, yeah, don't need that scene with Faramir. So I would have maybe kept a third of the additional scenes in this movie. Whereas Fellowship, more like two-thirds, and Return of the King, like 95%. So it always ends with the Hobbits, uh, continuing on their way. And what a better way. This is the fantasy version of Darth Vader, hell on Earth. And you gotta go, not just there, but to like the far side of it. Oh man, great work. I could really watch the Battle of Helm's Deep over and over again. You know, I get why they mix up all the storylines throughout the three movies, cut back and forth, show the immediacy of it and the simultaneity, but it would be cool as a special feature to be able to watch the main battles not split up. If you could watch just the Battle of Helm's Deep all together, you could watch the Battle of Pelennor Fields save Minas Tirith, the elephants and everything all together. But it just keeps you coming back for more, and you watch the whole thing, and you love it all. And honestly, it, it's funny, you know, in some ways, there's things about this movie that make it my favorite. Battle of Helm's Deep is one. As much as I love medieval battles, and even more love talking about them, or reading about them, um, it's always character stuff for me. And so, you know, in this movie, it's the, it's the, the, the three musketeers, Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn. It's also Eowyn. Aomer, they're 
uncle's redemption or the beginning of his redemption, King Theoden, Aragorn, of course, being in the middle of everything. And with the Ents, we get a cool little side story that just has major implications in terms of its radical environmentalist message about where industry is taking us. And, you know, trees are so much more and so much more valuable than paper and firewood. So I hope you enjoyed this. Um, I'm hoping you watch the three commentaries in order, even though I'm going backwards. Uh, It shouldn't be too contradictory, but um, I think you'll love Return of the King because in some ways there's just the most going on, the most interesting, and it just never stops for two seconds, even though it's like four hours. So I hope you enjoyed this, and I will see you soon. Bizzle out.